Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right, and welcome, welcome everyone to the second general session of the California Council of the Blinds navigating the future together virtual conference and convention gosh that was a mouthful i am (laughs) sarah harris first vice president and i will be uh, your presiding officer for this session which i'm super excited about we have a lot of great things going on um i wanted to start off by reminding everybody about our exhibitors our virtual exhibit hall so don't forget to go visit our folks over there that's been sent out and if you need that, you can always email convention at convention.ccv at gmail.com. And because I get to do this, I'm going to go ahead, because she just joined and asked Miss Lisa Presley-Thomas, our treasurer, to go ahead and pull a door prize. Are you ready? I'm ready. Woohoo! I haven't given away any money all day, so I'm excited. Yay! We love to give away money. <laughs> So let's start off with doing $25 Amazon gift card uh, given by IDC. All right. Thank you, IDC. And the winner is David Mandel. All right, to David. I know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so do I. Heard, heard of him a time right? Congratulations, David, and thank you, Lisa. We'll be we'll be bringing you back around here pretty soon. And so this afternoon, we have a lot of great things going on, really sticking with our theme of navigating the future. We're going to be joined by Andy Imperato with Disability Rights California, Joe Xavier, the Director of Department of Rehab. We have a surprise after that. And then we are also going to be joined by Ron Brooks, who's going to have a conversation with us about our favorite topic, you know, transportation. We all love to talk about transportation. So it is absolutely my pleasure to introduce Mr. Andy Imperato, who is the Executive Director with Disability Rights California. And what's so interesting about Andy that I I found when I was reading his bio, which I sent out so everybody can check it out is the fact that he took over as ED at DRC right before the pandemic. And and I know a couple other executive directors that had that happen to them. And and I'm sure that's been an interesting um, journey for you. So without further ado, I'm going to hand it on over to Andy and go for it. It's all yours. Thank you so much, Sarah. You know, this is a, a relatively small group, so I'm hoping that we'll have plenty of time for Q&A, but I really appreciate um, this opportunity to be with you all. Sarah, you're right that I started at Disability Rights California in February of 2020, so I had one month in our Sacramento office, and I actually got down and visited the LA office before everything shut down. But I I don't know if your audience knows that I'm here in large part because of a leader in the California Council of the Blind who was the chair of the board and then the president of the board of Disability Rights California when they hired me and when I first started in the job. Jeff Tom was on the committee that hired me 
he's somebody that I actually knew when I was in Washington. I, I spent 26 years in D.C. before coming back to my home state in February of 2020. So, uh, so yeah, Jeff hired me, and then he became the president of our board in March of 2020. So my first two years in the job, Jeff was the board president, and then this last March he became the immediate past president. And um, Sarah Smith, Sandra Smith, I'm sorry, from Sacramento, also from Sacramento, who's a parent leader from the intellectual and developmental disability community, is our new board president. And I think you all know Ralph Black, another leader in the blindness community, is the chair of our legislative committee. So um, you are definitely well represented on our board and helping to drive a lot of our uh, our policy advocacy agenda at Disability Rights California. So just to fill in a little bit of my background, Sarah, I graduated law school. I went to law school at Stanford in Northern California, and I graduated in May of 1990. And the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed into law by President Bush in July of that year. And that was also the year when I had my first serious episode of depression and ended up getting diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So um, I kind of had a new onset disability as an adult, as a young lawyer, and I had a civil rights law to protect me in the workplace that happened right after I graduated. So it was good timing for me. And luckily, I've been able to be out and open with my disability throughout my career. I started in Boston, uh, worked at the Protection and Advocacy Agency, similar to Disability Rights California there, called the Disability Law Center and then came to D.C. in 93 to work for Senator Tom Harkin on the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Disability Policy and did a bunch of other kind of policy and advocacy and nonprofit leadership roles in D.C. and came back here in 2020. So, you know, I think um, one thing I just want to note is during my time in D.C., I had the chance to work closely with the leaders at the American Council of the Blind um, including Melanie Brunson and Eric Bridges and others. And I've always appreciated the collaboration. And, uh, you know, I also worked closely with the American Foundation for the Blind and the National Federation of the Blind and continued to be uh, in close contact with leaders in D.C. You know, you all asked me to talk about um, kind of uh, my vision for Disability Rights California and for the future of disability policy and policy that affects people who are blind and low vision in California. And, you know, I would say uh, maybe it's my bipolar disorder, but my, my vision for California right now is uh, optimistic, but also worried. Um, I think uh, there's a lot to be excited about. There's a lot of potential for our state to do better um, and to become more of a national leader in a lot of areas that affect people with disabilities broadly or affect uh, people who are blind or low vision. But there's also um, some storm clouds on the horizon that, that you know make my optimism a little bit qualified. And I, I think one of the things I'm hoping you're going to see from Disability Rights California moving forward is a real uh, intentional effort to connect with disability-led organizations across the state and make sure that the, the voices of people with disabilities are a more central part of the policy development process in Sacramento and across the state. Um, 
So why, why am I optimistic uh, looking towards the future? One thing that gives me optimism is we now have a person working directly for the governor who is kind of leading on disability, aging, and Alzheimer's issues. This is a new position that Governor Newsom created after we, we finished our work on the master plan for aging. I had the pleasure of serving as a member of the stakeholder advisory committee for that plan. And one of the things we recommended was that the governor have somebody in his office who could oversee implementation of the plan across the entire state government, not just from the Department of Aging. So Kim McCoy Wade, who had been the head of the California Department of Aging, got uh, moved over to working directly for the governor on aging and disability and Alzheimer's. And I feel like having her in that role is giving us more access to the governor more access to the governor's inner circle. And my hope is, especially if Newsom gets reelected in the context of a second term, we're going to see disability issues getting a, a greater level of attention and being integrated in a better way to priorities that the governor has already set. You know, things like climate change, making sure that people with disabilities are part of those conversations. I heard somebody earlier mention transportation, making sure we're at the table thinking about the future of transportation in California, the future of technology, broadband, telecommunications, you name it. Um, I think Kim is going to help us get to tables that we haven't been historically, and that gives me some hope for the future. I'm also excited about a piece of legislation that Disability Rights California sponsored in this legislative session that... Um, lays the foundation for a new civil rights law for people with disabilities in California. We want to work with the state legislature to write a Californians with Disabilities Act that would be kind of a current uh, assertion of what civil rights means for people with all types of disabilities in California. And I think our goal here is to write a law that um, would become the best law in the country in terms of uh, providing clarity on what is required for civil rights for people with disabilities. And I think a big part of this law will provide clarity around uh, technology accessibility as the tech industry has such a huge presence in California, trying to get them to understand they need to build in accessibility and universal design on the front end when they release new products um, and all these kind of side industries that grow out of the, the tech sector, like Uber, which is definitely changing transportation, um, you know, Airbnb, all these different side industries that, that kind of come out of tech, they all need to do a better job of integrating accessibility and universal design. So my hope is that as we write this new omnibus civil rights law for people with disabilities in California, that the California Council of the Blind will be a major player in helping us to write the provisions of the law that would be a, a modern approach to ensuring accessibility and full participation for Californians who are part of the blind and low vision community. Another thing that gives me some hope is just what's happening in the tech sector, as I'm sure you all have noticed, there are a number of high profile folks with disabilities that are getting hired into important jobs in technology companies. Um, you know, I think about somebody like K.R. Liu, who's a deaf person who works for Google. 
Um, but my hope is that what's going to happen over time is the tech sector is going to have more and more people with disabilities internally, and they're going to realize that they need to do culture change in order to get um, the people that are writing the apps and writing the kind of doing the engineering around their new products to really think much harder about human factors and universal design as they're developing new products. The tech sector is a major employer in California. So just getting them as they grow to have measurable goals around hiring people with all types of disabilities into the tech sector and all types of roles, I think could also help to position California as more of a leader in labor force participation for people with disabilities. I'm also excited about uh, more of a focus in Hollywood, which is another major industry in California, uh, to have content that's produced by people with disabilities and to have roles uh, that are written for people with disabilities to actually be played by people who actually have disabilities. Uh, the CODA Academy Award uh, uh, win was a historic win in lots of ways, but I think one of the important aspects of that win is that was a, a movie that uh, Marley Matlin and other leaders in the deaf community helped to make happen. Uh, it, it cast lots of actors who were deaf and one of the deaf actors won for best actor. So my hope is that kind of authentic content is going to become the new normal in Hollywood. And as we see more and more focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion in Hollywood and other places, disability will be part of that conversation in a way that it always that has not always been in Hollywood and in the arts. Um, another thing that gives me hope looking towards the future is opportunities for the state to, to be more of a leader in employing people with disabilities. Ralph Black, who serves on my board at um, Disability Rights California has worked on this issue for a long time. And he, he pointed out to me that the percentage of state employees with disabilities between 2015 and 2021 actually went down pretty significantly from about 15% to about 10% of the state government. This is a broad definition of disability, um, similar to the one that we use in the Americans with Disabilities Act. So um, that trend line is the wrong trend line. And we've been, now that we have Kim in the governor's office, we've been engaging with the governor's office to try to um, set a goal and try to turn around the trend line. Ana Manasantis, who plays an important role in the budget and in lots of ways for Governor Newsom, had a meeting with a group of us from the disability community and committed to working with us to try to turn around that trend and help the state be more of a model employer for people with disabilities. This would be part of a broader effort in the Newsom administration to make the state uh, reflect the diversity of California. So my hope is again, in a second term, we're gonna see Cal HR, Department of Rehabilitation and other state agencies kind of stepping up and being more proactive at making sure that there's a pipeline for people with disabilities to come into state government service, that as people acquire disabilities, including blindness, while they're in state government service, that they'll be able to stay and that they'll be able to be promoted and move into leadership roles uh, across the state government. Um, 
you know, and the last thing I'll say is an opportunity that I that I see for our state moving forward is we got a lot of younger folks uh, with the, all kinds of disabilities who reflect the racial and ethnic diversity, the the um, LGBTQIA plus community. Um, and I see them kind of stepping up in different ways. Many of them are involved in social entrepreneur type enterprises and are, you know, kind of helping to bring visibility to our movement, not just in California, but globally. So I think about people like Haben Gurma, you know, the deaf blind attorney who uh, wrote a book and is given, doing speaking all over the world, kind of putting a face on deaf blindness, a new generation of deaf blind leaders. I think about Tiffany Yu, who's a social entrepreneur in San Francisco, um, who started a company called Diversability, and it's very uh, kind of TikTok and Instagram savvy, and so many other folks that I that I'm seeing across our state who are helping kind of put a fresh face on disability and the disability movement globally, and it's exciting to see so many of those leaders choose to live in California. So. Now to just give well why so with all that reason to be optimistic why why be cautious well to me one of the reasons to be cautious is I feel like our state government is kind of mediocre in um, the outcomes that we're able to produce for people with disabilities our labor force participation rates in California are about middle of the road compared to other states. Um, our high school graduation rates, we're, we're not a national leader in that area for people with disabilities. Housing is incredibly unaffordable in this state, and that has a huge impact on kind of the ability of people with disabilities to acquire wealth in our state. Um, so many things are more expensive in California than they are in other parts of the country. So I think if we really are going to become a leader, California has to really grapple with the fact that we've grown very comfortable as a state with inequality. We have some of the wealthiest people in the world and we have some of the poorest people in the world living very close to them. Uh, the unhoused population, which keeps growing, is a visible sign of the fact that, that as a state uh, housing, we, we've allowed housing to become so unaffordable for so many people. And, you know, the, the latest plan that the governor put forward to try to address the situation for the unhoused population that he's calling care courts, to me, would actually do harm to the unhoused population. This is a new proposal that's targeting folks with psychosis or schizophrenia. And it's saying that if somebody sees somebody on the street and thinks that they might have psychosis and they need help, they can be referred to a court. The court can take charge of their care and order them uh, into a care plan that they may or may not like. Um, and these are people who have not committed any crimes. There's a, there's a lot of things in current law that allow courts to um, force people to take medication or do things they don't want to do if they've committed a crime or if they're uh, you know, a serious risk to their own health or safety or the health of safety of the people around them. Care court is a dramatic expansion of the tools that the state already has. Um, and we're really worried that it's going to disproportionately impact black and brown people in California. It's basically putting a court in charge of the brains and bodies of people who are black and brown, who somebody thinks 
are schizophrenic or have psychosis. Um, so that whole issue and how that gets played out, it's a huge priority for the governor. He, it's part of the May revised budget that he announced today. And it's something that Disability Rights California is working with a broad coalition to try to push back on. But we are, we are worried about that. The other thing that, that I think gives me pause is that our state legislature does not have a lot of people with lived experience with disabilities in the legislature. So I think if we want to see California be a national leader, we need to build a pipeline for people with disabilities to run for office, and we need to see more representation in the state legislature and in the state government at every level. And, you know, I think um, to the extent that there are groups in California that have helped folks from different underrepresented constituencies run for office, learn how to run political campaigns and, um, and have political success, a lot of those groups have not included people with disabilities in that, in that effort. And I think that's an opportunity for us moving forward if we don't have representation in our state legislature and in the cabinet of the executive branch of the state government, if we don't have representation in city councils, in mayor's offices, in county executive positions, then it's just a missed, I, I feel like the policy is never gonna be as strong as it would be if we were represented in the government. So my hope is that that's something that we're gonna address, but right now we don't have much representation in the government and the people that do have disabilities in the state legislature to a large degree don't feel comfortable being out and open with their disabilities and don't use their disabilities as part of their political identity. So that's something that I'm hoping will change as we move forward. So the, the last thing I just wanted to touch on, and then I do want to open it up for, for questions, is the role of Disability Rights California in helping California do better. I think you all know we are the federally funded protection and advocacy agency for people with disabilities in California. We were created in 1978. Our funding is based on the size of our state. So because California is the biggest state in the country, we are the biggest protection and advocacy agency in the country. Right now we have a $41 million budget, about 330 staff, um, over a hundred attorneys. And we are more than twice the size of the next largest protection advocacy agency. Disability Rights Texas uh, has a budget of less than $20 million and they're the next biggest protection advocacy agency after us. And part of the reason for that is not just our federal grant, but also we, we have a significant contract from our state Department of Developmental Service, from the state Department of State Hospitals, and from the state bar. So about half of our funding is federal and about half of it is either state government or state bar funding. And I mention all this just to say that I feel like Disability Rights California needs to be the best protection advocacy agency in the country and have the most impact because we're the largest and we need to make sure we're getting a good return on the investment of dollars that are coming to us. Um, what I've heard from a lot of leaders in the disability movement in California is that they're aware of Disability Rights California. They're aware that we have some really good lawyers and we do good work, but a lot of people see us as a fortress and they're not sure how to penetrate the fortress. When people come to us for individual help, they don't always get the help that they're looking for. 
And when they want to partner with us on, you know, systemic issues, they don't always know kind of where to go and how to, how to become part of our agenda. So if you look to the future of Disability Rights California, the, the board of directors, including, you know, Jeff, Tom in a leadership role, they really want us to be more connected and more accountable to the authentic leaders of the disability movement in California. And that's a big priority in our strategic. We have a new strategic map for the organization. And it's a big priority for me personally. It's part of the reason they hired me because I had a track record of working alongside authentic leaders in the disability movement nationally to try to accomplish big things that we all cared about. Um, I also think one of the opportunities that organizations like Disability Rights California have is to build a stronger cross-disability coalition. Um, doing that well requires our, us to have the ability to listen to all the voices in the disability movement in California, listen for common issues that bring people together and recognize that we're not all going to agree on everything, and that's okay. Just a, a recent example, we were asked to sign on to a coalition letter related to education of children with disabilities in California, and the person who asked us to sign on to it is the former head of special education in California, who I really admire. Her name's Kristen Wright. But one of my attorneys who did the analysis said, you know, there's some stuff in this letter that the deaf community may not agree with in terms of what it means for education of deaf children. So we ran the letter by Sherry Farina, who's on our board, who's one of the most influential leaders in the deaf community in California. She runs NorCal Deaf Services. And she told us she didn't think we should sign the letter, and we didn't. And my hope is that we can go back to Kristen Wright and say, your coalition needs to sit down with the deaf community and work out this part of the letter. And if you're able to do that, then we'll sign it. Um, but I feel like that kind of cross disability, trying to um, make sure that some of the voices are not being ignored or just some of their issues are not being ignored is part of our job as a cross disability organization. We've also prioritized intersectional advocacy moving forward. Obviously, we have an incredibly diverse state. Um, when we think about all the issues that affect people with disabilities in California, some of those issues are immigration policy, criminal justice reform, other issues that are not, uh, that haven't always been front and center disability issues. But if you pay attention to people with disabilities who are from other marginalized populations, they will tell you that these are very important priority issues. So Disability Rights California is more out there on these issues than we've been historically. And I think you're going to see more of that from us moving forward. Um, and then finally, I think historically, Disability Rights California has relied on our national organization, probably similar to California Council of the Blind, relying on the American Council of the Blind. But we've relied on the National Disability Rights Network to be kind of our voice in Washington and to work with Congress to try to, you know, advocate for an agenda that will be good for people with disabilities in California. The problem that I have with that approach is California has the biggest congressional delegation in the country. We have some of the most powerful members of Congress, including obviously Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy. And I think Disability Rights California can do a better job building relationships with and leveraging our congressional delegation 
than any national organization would be able to do. So um, my director of public policy, Eric Harris, like me, has experience working in Washington. I, I was the disability policy director for Senator Tom Harkin when he was the chair of the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. Eric has worked for Congresswoman Barbara Lee. He's worked for the Democratic National Committee. So both of us really want to cultivate leaders in the California congressional delegation, especially younger leaders like Senator Padilla, and really turn them into important national champions for people with disabilities. And when they're in their home state of California, we want to connect them with authentic leaders of the disability movement in this state to connect them with programs that we see as model programs that can help drive federal policy. So that's another area that we're gonna have as a priority moving forward. So let me stop there. I, again, I really appreciate um, the opportunity to be with you all and I didn't wanna just talk at you. I think we have a good solid 20 minutes for Q&A and um, I, I look forward to your feedback, your ideas, your comments. So Sarah, do I turn it back over to you? Well, we can turn it over to our audience. And if anybody has any comments or questions, you know, I, I just have to say, Andy, you know, I, I've done a lot of work with GRC, especially in the realm of um, elections and voting with Paul and Carrie and Gabe. And, you know, just there's power within numbers and there's power within us. And, and, and I love the partnership that we have with DRC and, and continue to have. So thank you for coming out today. Well, Sarah, yeah. let, me, let me just say my voting rights practice group feels the same way about you and the California oh. Council of the Blind. And I, I do think it's worth noting that Senator Padilla was the Secretary of State before he was appointed to the United States Senate. And we all worked with him uh, on voting accessibility and found him to be a good, a good partner. So that gives me hope that he's going to be a good partner for us in the United States Senate. Um, and I know that uh, we, we're working together on a bill in the state legislature right now to improve accessibility of voting. So I appreciate you bringing up the voting partnership. Oh, it's so important. It's uh, one of my favorites, that's for sure. No, definitely near to my heart. And so, Andrea, do we have any hands? We do. We have one, and I believe it's Roger. Okay, very good. Um, I wanted to ask, um, I believe that, Disability Rights California is a is a member of a of a gang of organizations. They're called I think they're called um, um, oh what is the it used to be it used to be called um, advocacy what is it advocacy and Something systems? Yeah, the, the old name for our national organization was NAPIS, the National Association of Protection and Advocacy Systems. And then, advocacy. Yeah, they yeah. changed their name to the National Disability Rights Network, but it's the same same group. Oh, I see. Oh, the whole the whole network changed. Yeah. I see. I, I knew I, I was aware that it got started through the um, the Developmental Disabilities Act, I think, didn't it? Yeah. It was, they defined those, in the Developmental Disabilities Act, the, the protection and advocacy systems were defined or something? 
Yeah, that's right. The, the network was created in the late 70s in response to Geraldo Rivera's expose of Willoughby. Yeah, I was working for a developmental disabilities uh, uh, project when that, when that happened. Yeah. We had a, a group that went around to this country teaching folks about how to make use of federal programs. We called the Federal Programs Information and Assistance Project. Um, so um, I, I just, I was thinking that just the California one had changed its name. And I've, I've got, I have this problem about organizations that are supposed to be, that are defined somehow nationally and then they change their names like the, like the age, area agencies on aging are, have funny names now and you can't tell that they're, that what they really are. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> That's all I. That's all I wanted at the moment. Thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate your comment. Although, interestingly, like I like our new name better than our old name. We we used to be called Protection Advocacy Incorporated, but I feel like a lot of people didn't know what we did based on our name. And hopefully, with Disability Rights California, at least our name is a little bit clearer in terms of what we do. Um, Sarah, I I see some hands in the attendees, and it looks like Vita. Has their hand up in the panel. Uh, hello, thank you so much for your presentation. It's really helped me to learn more about DRC. Um, is DRC involved in any advocacy efforts with ride sharing services like Uber and Lyft? Uh, because now not only are they not taking people with guide dogs a good part of the time. Now um, I've had friends that are now just being turned down because they use a cane, um, you know, so just where, where are we with this effort? Yeah. So Vita, the short answer is yes. That's the, those are issues that we're working on. We've been working on, um, but I'm hoping that this Californians with Disabilities Act initiative that we're working on, the legislative initiative, is a chance for us to write a new civil rights law that, that is crystal clear, not just about what is illegal, because you know discriminating against people who have guide dogs or canes would be illegal under current law, but also to build a robust enforcement infrastructure in the state so that when people's rights are violated, there's a place for them to go to address the problem. And right now, as you probably know, our State Department of Fair Employment and Housing and our offices of civil rights across state government are not very robust. Uh, when you think about the size of our state and the amount of discrimination that happens across the state, the ability of our state government to actually enforce civil rights laws is pretty limited and pretty weak. So that's something that we want to work on. And obviously, it's the, the discrimination in the ride-sharing world is huge. And it's a, huge, it's a growing problem as ride-share supplants lots of other forms of transportation. So from my perspective, it's something that um, we should be a leader on in California. And if we can get it right here, hopefully that will have a ripple effect across the country since the companies are based here, the big ones are based here. And if we can teach them how to do it right here, hopefully they'll do it better, not just across the country, but across the world. So thank you for bringing mm -hmm. that up. Thank you. I really appreciate all of your efforts. Go ahead, Laura. Um, hello. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, 
this information. And um, I I noticed that you had mentioned wanting to become more involved on like a uh, cross um, cross sectional um, involvement with other organizations. Um, I myself am a, am a part of uh, um, several other organizations concerning uh, the undocumented population, Spanish speaking, as well as Native Council for California. And I was wondering, um, what can I do to get more involved um, to participate with uh, the disability rights of California? Thank you. Uh, yeah, Laura, thanks for that question. Um, I'm I'm not seeing a way I can put something in the chat, but Sarah, you have my email address. Can you make sure that Laura and anybody else that wants to get in touch with us has my personal email and then I can connect Laura to Richard Diaz and meet Sony and some of the attorneys who work for Disability Rights California who are leading our work around immigration rights? Absolutely. And and so if anybody would like Andy's information, you can email me at the, the convention email convention.ccb at gmail.com. And I'll get you his information for sure. That's great, Laura. I, I think that uh, you would make a, an amazing advocate. I've heard you on a couple of calls and, and, and I love seeing you in action. That's so awesome. Well, one, one thing, I, Laura, that I just want to say, meet Sony, who's part of our youth practice group, she came from one of the most effective statewide immigration rights uh, organizations in California. So she comes with like 18 years of experience as a leader in immigration rights. And we're just grateful to have her on our staff. And then Richard Diaz, who's part of our investigations unit, led our studies of what was happening to people with disabilities in immigration detention centers. One of the things that our protection and advocacy agency has is called our access authority which basically means wherever people with disabilities are in California, we have a federally protected right to go in and see how they're being treated. So we have the ability to go into detention centers that other organizations don't have the ability to go into. So that's something that Richard was able to use to expose some problematic practices, but that's something that we want to do more of moving forward. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I will definitely uh, give you a message and, and stay in contact. Sounds great. Thank you, Laura. Thank, Thank you. you, Laura. And next we have, uh, it's. I know it's Judy and Steve's uh, phone numbers. I bet you it's Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Andy, thank you for a wonderful presentation. Having had the uh, opportunity, indeed I'll say the privilege, of working with and getting to know a number of your staff in the context of uh, uh, working on behalf of CCB in various uh, impact litigation situations. I'm particularly interested in, in DYC's role in advocacy through litigation. In that context, I want to bring to your attention two very serious concerns that have emerged in the course of that work. Uh, one is, in some ways maybe the simpler one, is the fact that uh, uh, California state agencies uh, in what should be fairly straightforward accessibility litigation situations, situations that shouldn't even need to rise to the level of litigation, uh, tend uh, in um, our experience to drag their feet inordinately. Uh, very often, uh, though the result is inevitable and is known and is predictable, but nevertheless uh, drag out cases for years sometimes, which could and should be settled in months or never even have been cases at all. I'm wondering if there's anything systemically that we can do about that. The second problem 
which is uh, more perverse, is the fact that most of uh, our community's successes in, uh, in advocacy through litigation have been through settlement agreements or consent decrees. I call that law by contract. And well, obviously, it is preferable to do it that way for a number of reasons, not least of which the impossible burdens that taking cases to trial against public or private sector defenders would involve. But uh, because they are time-limited in most cases, they expire. And when they expire, if, as is often the case, there isn't the institutional commitment on the part of the uh, erstwhile defendants uh, to continue with accessibility, you get a tremendous amount of slippage. We've noticed this in situation after situation in both the public and private sectors. And I'm wondering, again, uh, broadly speaking, if you have any thoughts of what could be done about that. Yeah, thank you for that. Steve, uh, remind me of your last name? Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn, yeah. So you and we I have, we know have, each other. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's great, to talk to you, great to talk to you again. Yeah, good to hear your voice. I also see artist Basin on here who I, I got to work with when I was on the Ticket to Work and Work Incentives Advisory Panel for the Fed. So it's good to see some some old friends here. But Steve, you know, I, I feel like the issues that you're raising are symptoms of some of this challenge that I'm experiencing, you know, as somebody coming back to California after 30 years on the East Coast. I think we let our state government get away with behavior that we shouldn't let them get away with. If you think about what happens when a state agency gets sued, they typically have support from their in-house lawyers and then sometimes the state attorney general's office get involved in protecting them, just like at the federal level, the U.S. Department of Justice is involved in protecting federal agencies when they get sued. But, you know, it's a political decision as much as it is a legal decision how hard you're going to fight a lawsuit, right? I'll give you a recent example. We sued our state Department of Developmental Services because they weren't providing sign language interpreters. They weren't making sure that people who had intellectual and developmental disabilities who were getting services from regional centers had you know, qualified sign language interpreters and had basic communication access. And this was a problem that we saw happening across the state. We were frustrated that our state DD agency wasn't kind of asserting themselves with the regional centers and saying, this is not an option. This is a federal civil rights requirement. So we sued them, and instead of just sitting down with us and settling the lawsuit, it played out for like two years. You know, so I think that's a symptom of what you're saying. And I, from my perspective, we need an attorney general that is passionate about civil and human rights, including civil rights for people with disabilities, and we need a robust enforcement arm within the attorney general's office that can sit down with the lawyers that are doing defense and make sure that the attorney general has a consistent set of values that they're expressing on behalf of the state. So Steve, you probably know um, Javier Becerra, one of the last things he did when he was the state attorney general is he created a new disability rights uh, division within the attorney general's office. It's pretty small, but I'm hoping that that can be the beginning of changing the culture in that office, which then can help us when we're negotiating with state agencies and they can sit down with us and settle and not drag these things out. And, you know, on the consent decree side, I think that's more complicated. I think you would probably be able to come up with better solutions to that than I would because I'm not a litigator, but you're right that it's a very important tool that we've been able to use historically. And I do think as the bench continues to 
um, be emboldened by the leadership on the Supreme Court, the, the kinds of leadership we've seen from federal judges on civil rights issues may get weaker over time, and that's very scary to me. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, and belated welcome back to California. Thank you, sir. <laughs> okay, next we have Jordan. Please go ahead. Hi. Um, what's the difference between disability rights advocates and disability rights of California? Yeah, that's a great question, Jordan. So there, there's three groups in California, probably more than three, but there's three, <laughs> three big groups in California that start with the word disability rights. Disability Rights California is the federally funded protection and advocacy agency, and we are by far the largest. Disability Rights Education Defense Fund is about as old as we are, but they're a lot smaller. We have 330 staff. They have about 20. And then Disability Rights Advocates is kind of newer. Um, they are very successful litigators, very talented their leader is a blind woman named Kathy Martinez, who's not a lawyer, mm -hmm. um, but they're not federally funded. They're, they're basically uh, a boutique civil rights law firm that brings in a lot of money through attorney's fees, and they're able to fund, fund a lot of what they do through their success in litigation. Right. We had someone from their firm on today uh, at 10 o'clock. Well, and they do great work, and we we collaborate with them in a lot of our litigation. So, uh, California, you know, I think we have some of the best disability civil rights litigators in the country, and they know each other and collaborate on a lot of cases. And we're grateful for the leadership of disability rights advocates and the disability rights education and defense fund. Oh yes, teamwork makes a dream work. That's for sure. <laughs> so this is Gabe. I'd like to jump in for a second and oh, just say, please. just say, please Andy, thank Mr. you for, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Andy, thank you so much for being here and for for this presentation. And um, yeah, we we have a pretty good history of uh, CCB and and uh, ERC working together. So definitely want to be able to continue that long into the future. And uh, glad you're able to be here this afternoon to to present to us and yeah i know i've uh, i've been on calls with uh with folks uh, both from from your organization and from dra at the same point so uh we definitely all all work together and ccb is lucky enough to have good partnerships and good relationships with uh with all of those organizations that you mentioned but uh, but for sure wanted to just say thank you for for being here this afternoon Thank you, Gabe, and uh, I'm looking forward to when we can get together in person, having a meal with you. I think Jeff told me you live in Concord or somewhere in Northern California. So That's correct, yeah. yeah. Hopefully we can get down and have a meal. That would be nice. I'll get together. We're not all that far apart. Yeah. And I know Jeff is a big 49ers fan. I don't, I don't know if you are. Yeah, but we'll forgive him for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and call on Margie Donovan. And thank you, Andy. Um, I, um, I want to begin with an acknowledgement of DRC in a recent letter to Sacramento Regional Transit. And um, that letter was, is in regards to the Connect card, which um, is called different things in different areas. But this is a, <clears throat> I'm going to say it looks like a credit card, for lack of a better term. And you can load money on it. You can have it auto-loaded on it, a credit card and account. And every time it drops down to X amount, I'm saying this for the, our members' purposes, have it reload. 
And um, prior to Folsom, where I live, moving over to regional transit, I had mine set up to where, you know, once it dropped to 20, it add another 20. And I never ran out of money, whether I'm using light rail or in Folsom at the time, dial a ride. And then regional transit took over Folsom and Elk Grove as well. Um, and suddenly their vehicles don't have the readers on them. And we as people with disabilities can't use it for paratransit and um, DRC identified the need and wrote a letter and as a member of the mobility advisory committee I've been I've been well you all know me I've been harping this for months with no response and um, so I want to acknowledge DRC for seeing that problem and sending that letter and it's my understanding and I won't get into anything with you here but that regional transit and you guys are supposed to have a meeting this week, which I thought was pretty quick for regional transit to move. Um, so I want to thank you guys for identifying that need and um, addressing that need. And I have all the confidence in the world that my harping for all this time may not have paid off, but this letter certainly is going to be paying off, um, <clears throat> which I hope will um, have them listen to more of the MAC members when we holler things like that's not legal. But all that being said, um, I want to address the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is this. We all know throughout this state, there's very serious issues with paratransit services. We all know that this preceded COVID. We also all know that um, federal law did not exempt anybody through COVID from providing services as expected that would include paratransit. The reality is a shortage of drivers. So, um, I, I guess this is real prevalent. I run a support, co-facilitated co support group for, for um, one of our affiliates in the CCB, and it's on Friday mornings. And one of our members just said that she was told it would take her two months to get eligible for paratransit. That is totally not legal. Um, and there is so much going on with paratransit, like late rides, um, um, keeping people on vehicles longer than what they're legally allowed to. I'm, I'm seeing an opportunity here for more advocacy, but I'm also seeing an opportunity here to maybe work with DRC um, to help co-sponsor possibly a seminar or two. A lot of our members are not aware of their paratransit rights for whatever reason. And um, I happen to be a strong advocate in this area. And I'm just hoping that maybe over the next year, we can work together to better educate our community members, our CCB members, on what they can legally expect and what they should do if they're not getting this. Do, do you see, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you see this kind of collaboration in the future, possibly? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're happy to do that. As you probably know, we have a civil rights practice group that plays a leadership role for us on transportation. And then we have uh, our Office of Clients Rights Advocacy, which is focused on intellectual, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, which also does, you know, trainings on people's rights uh, to transportation. So we're happy to do that. Um, I'm glad that you had a good experience with our folks on your local issue in Folsom. But I would also say this Californians with Disabilities Act is a chance for us to educate the state legislature on what's not working in civil rights. And this is an example. We have strong federal requirements that aren't being complied with. So I would also view that legislative effort as an opportunity to get more resources going into paratransit 
so that some of these problems that you're describing don't happen. Thank you, thank you for that. And thank you, Margie, and stick around. Ron's gonna be here in a little bit talking about paratransit as well, our favorite subject, I'm telling you. Artist, um, do you have your hand up or am I the only one I, I think Artist is on the panelist. I, I just wanted to ask if you've done anything with um, my chart, uh, because I know that's a real pain to use. And a lot of times doctors communicate using my chart and, um, you're talking about improving the accessibility of that of that yes. online tool. Yeah, I mean, that's, an, that's an example of something that's more and more important over time that should have had accessibility baked in on the front end, and it didn't. So, yes, it's on our radar screen. It's something that we're working on. Um, but, again, I think there's an opportunity for us to work together on it. And if you all have suggestions, either, you know, including this as part of our omnibus civil rights bill, or just meeting with the right people in the kind of the health sector to try to get the improvement on, on the private sector side, you know, and we're open to all of the above. Great. Thanks. Yeah. And we Sorry. do have a good artist, as you probably know, we have a good relationship with secretary Galley. So this is also something we might want to meet with secretary Galley about and see if our state department of health and human services could show some leadership on this issue. Good, good. Right. So just going back, Sarah, to, to closing comments, I mean, I hope that uh, you all invite me back and I look forward to, to growing this relationship over time. I look forward to being with you in person when it's safe for all of us to do that. And, you know, I just encourage you all, I'm, I'm on social media, so if you can't spell my last name and are trying to find me, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter. I'm, I'm at Andy DRC on Twitter. But I really welcome your feedback, your ideas, and your collaboration. And, and I hope you know I'm really grateful for Jeff Tom's leadership on our board, you know, his long-term leadership in the disability movement nationally and in California. And uh, I feel like I'm here in my job in part because of Jeff. So I hope you guys, if you like what I'm doing, take credit for it. And if you don't, you can blame Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, Jeff's we, we all right. Jeff anyway. we, we like him okay. We'll, we'll keep him around. But it, it really, thank you so much, Andy. And, and uh, you know, on behalf of all of CCB, we really look forward to this continued partnership. And, yes, one day when we can all be in person together and um, shake hands, right? One day, right? Sounds good. Absolutely. Well, thank you very, very much. Everybody give your virtual round of applause. Yay! All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So before we move on, I have to do something that I forgot to do at the top of the hour for my good friend, Roger Peterson. Um, I want to take a minute to talk about our folks who live in Orange County and, you know, just want to say that we have you in your, in our thoughts as there's fires going on down there. Um, if anybody's being affected by the fires, um, please, you know, reach out um, to CCB and we can maybe connect you with folks that can help you um, in any way. Um, and, you know, during the weekend, if you email the convention.ccb at gmail.com, I will do my best to try to connect you with resources um, in any way possible. It's part of my day job, what I do. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out in the universe and, and hopefully, you know, we're, we're throwing out some good vibes to folks. Um, 
And with that being said, let's, before we bring Joe on, Lisa, are you around for a door price? I'm here. All right. So, uh, we're doing $25 Amazon gift card. Um, and it was gifted by CCB. And let's spin the wheel. And the winner is Leslie Tom. Congratulations, Leslie. I know her too. Congratulations, Leslie. All right. Thank you, Lisa. You make such a good Vanna. Maybe we should call you Lisa Vanna when you're doing that. She's a good (laughs) Vanna. Tara, I just want to mention really quick, we're getting quite a bit of smoke over here. Uh, It's not affecting us directly, but we're certainly getting smoke. Well, stay safe. And it's a good thing we all have all this PPE, right? You can put on a mask. Yep, absolutely. Could be helpful for sure, for sure. All right. So is Joe here? I am. So everyone, today is my absolute pleasure to introduce the Director of the Department of Rehabilitation here in California, Mr. Joe Xavier. Um, He has been a great leader within our community with uh, people who are blind or have low vision. And today he's going to join us to kind of talk about maybe what that future, you know, is going to look like for people with vision loss and you know, because the truth is, is we're all very adaptable and, you know, we can make good stuff happen. And so Joe's going to share his thoughts and open up some dialogue and we're going to have a good time. So I'm going to hand it on over to you, Joe. Um, and thank you, Sarah, for that warm welcome. Um, always great to be here and come back and speak to CCB. Um, it's, it's always like coming home for me. And certainly to all of you that have made the time to join, um, not only support CCB, but to have an opportunity to share and learn from the various presenters and with yourselves, always applaud that. And certainly the leadership, um, Gabe and Sarah and the rest of the board, um, you do this not for fanfare, not for pay, but your leadership is invaluable to continue the work of the council and continue the advocacy that is so needed um, to our door partners, our Department of Rehabilitation partners and staff that are on. Thank you for joining and being part of that. So Sarah's asked me to speak to what's the world like for blind people moving forward. Um, and, and then I'll talk a little bit more focused about employment. And this is something that I spent a considerable amount of time thinking about, of course, and in particular over the last couple of two and a half years with the onset of the pandemic. But a couple of things still remain um, as true before the pandemic as they do now. And that's the unemployment rate of people with disabilities still largely in the 70% range, nowhere near acceptable. But at the same time, we see a pretty significant shift in society's expectation that individuals with disabilities would go to work. And so one of the things you might say is, well, how do we measure that? Where do we see that? And I often say that society's beliefs and values and expectations are reflected in the laws that they enact. And if you look simply at the enactment of the Rehab Act and the various iterations, you increasingly see an expectation of employment and an expectation of people having the opportunity to live in a community of choice with purpose and dignity. 
And just as a two extreme points to highlight that, you go back to 1938 and nobody believed employment was possible for people with disabilities. And that's where we stood up, what is called Section 14C in the Fair Labor Standards Act. And today we have competitive integrated employment as the predominant thought in what we're doing, right? And then, of course, we see um, the shift to artificial intelligence, to the gig economy, and to things like remote work. Um, and here's what's important about that. We look at COVID-19 and we say that was a, a, a big shift. COVID-19 didn't create any of these trends. It simply accelerated them significantly, right? And I would say that history will look back on the COVID-19 and also judge it as a major milestone in our history, like so many other um, great events, right? So what have been some of the trends um, impacting employment for people with disabilities? And a while back, I heard a presentation and somebody used an analogy that I think um, is really important. And that is um, that the Jetsons, for those of you that are old enough, you'll remember that back in the 60s and 70s and in, in, in the Jetsons, you had what we now get to know as the microwave. And back then it was a device that made a meal in a couple of minutes. And back there you had a robot that cleaned the floor. And today we have room with a vacuum cleaner that runs all, runs all over the house doing that. And then you had this video device on the wall that people talk to. And here we are today. Just look at the, at the platform that we're in. So... I started using assistive technology back um, in the 70s. And my first CCTV took a pretty sturdy desk to hold it, and the entire desk, right? And you had to had a pretty good set of uh, arms to pick that thing up and move it around. And today I'm using an iPhone that does everything a CCTV did, and then some, um, and, and so many other things that it have, that have built in. But increasingly, we see that assistive technology is being built into the products, whether it's to the iPhone and the Apple devices or to the Microsoft products or into, um, into all of the Amazon products that you see, like, a, like Alexa, as an example. And also, we're seeing this shift um, from specialized systems to where specialization being brought into different systems. I think it's an important trend for us to be paying attention to both in the, in the world of independent living as well as in the world of employment. And likewise, more and more efforts today are being made to go upstream and really have an impact both through prevention and intervention to change the opportunity for people downstream. So as an example, think of what um, you can do in the K-12 system to ensure that individuals or youth with disabilities have a much better access at earning a family-sustaining wage. The shifts that are, that are, are taking place in jobs performed by automation, um, on one hand, are very, very scary, and on the other hand, can also create some opportunities, and we have examples in history of something like that, for example, when the PC was introduced. The other thing that, the other trend that we are seeing, and it is not happening nearly as fast as we would like, and that is that increasingly business is shifting 
from the mindset that hiring people with disabilities is a noble good to the mindset that it's a market imperative. So as someone who's blind, sitting where I'm sitting, thinking about the world of employment, where it is today and where it is going, what are the things that go through my mind? One, um, when we talk about business, we need to talk about, when we talk about business, when we need to talk about jobs, we need to understand that it's small business, it's corporate, it's for-profit, it's nonprofit, it's CBOs, and it's um, government at all levels, local, state, and federal level, right? So when I say the word business, I mean anybody, including some of you who are on this call, that influences or makes a hire of a person with a disability, right? We are today hearing routinely that there are many more jobs and there are people to fill those jobs. And that simply creates an increased opportunity for people with disabilities to go to work. So um, we also see a continued focus by the businesses, not only in the attitude of how they hire people with disabilities, but actually increasing the opportunity within their, their structures for people with disabilities. The other shift that we see is that there's much more of the use of apprenticeships to expand access to jobs, and it's more important today than it ever has been. So we see this in, in healthcare and the allied fields. We see it in information technology, and we see it in civil service. So instead of the traditional pursuit of a, for, of, of a college higher education, apprenticeships are creating most uh, or pathways into these jobs, and these are very good jobs. So what are the top three growing job sectors that are taking place in California? Um, healthcare and service occupations, uh, personal care aides, um, fitness trainers, aerobics instructors, um, and then um, recreation attendants and the like. Those are some of the areas where we're beginning to see job growth. There's a lot of growth projected, projected throughout uh, through the year of 2028. Two is in um, food preparation and related occupations. And so in here, you have those folks that are preparing the meals. Um, you have the folks that are serving it. And you have a lot of you know, the management in those, in those arenas. And the third one is um, transportation and material movements. Now, in this area, it's the people who were handling um, the, the, the material um, back and forth. And then, of course, there's a number of occupations here that are focused on driving. But keep in mind that when you expand the sector, there's a lot of other underlying jobs. So, for example, technology is going to live with every single one of these jobs. And so those provide lots of opportunity for individuals who are blind um, and visually impaired. So when we also think about where we are today and where we're going, one of the big shifts that we've seen in the last couple of years is remote employment. And a couple of things are taking place on this front. One, it has created a whole mindset shift and a whole different approach to what the workplace looks like, right? So I'll give you an example of what that looks like. So here at the Department of Rehabilitation, we have about 2,000 staff scattered around the state. And for many, many years, we really have been wanting to shift to remote work um, for a bunch of different reasons. And one of them is to really reduce the cost of brick and mortar so that we would have 
more dollars to provide services to consumers. And in spite of our best efforts for many, many years, we could not really gain the traction on it. Well, COVID hits, and in a matter of, you know, four to six to eight weeks, we had as much as 80% of our staff working remotely, right? That's how significant that shift took place. Now, we are not by no means unique in that. Many other governments did that. Many private sector entities did that. And it's really important that we pay attention to it, not just because of the shift, but because that was a trend that was taking place before COVID. And so COVID simply accelerated the heck out of that. So when we think of that kind of shift in the workplace, we also need to keep in mind that in the near term, a lot of us are going to need to develop that skill set that is required for us to function in the remote workplace in the remote environment. Right. And frankly, um, the, the first job that you have, your first interview that you have is likely going to be in the virtual remote world. Ninety nine percent of the interviews that we've been doing over the last two and a half years have all been done remotely. We wouldn't have thought of doing that prior to COVID-19. And then, um, you know, I mentioned I mentioned the, the skill set, but I want to get a little deeper into the skill set that we need to evolve very quickly. And so I'll use myself as an example. When I started making this shift to the remote world, well, one of the first things was I had to learn how to use um, Teams. And then I said, okay, finally, I'm beginning to use Teams. Oh, no, now we need to add Zoom. And then I started adding Zoom and I go, oh, my goodness, now I'm going to this meeting and they want WebEx. And the next meeting is Google Meets. And so part of me says, why can't we just use the one platform so that everybody gets competent and comfortable with it and, and we know how to use it and it's accessible, et cetera. But what it dawned on me is that that's all good and well if I was the one that was setting up the meetings and controlling them. But I would often be invited and, and need to participate in meetings and forums where these other platforms were. So I had to very quickly shift my mindset from I want this platform to I better know how to use whatever that platform is that I'm going to be invited to use um, when I go to them, right? The other thing that I had to really pay attention to as a blind person is the use of video. Now, when we first shifted to these remote platforms, first thing I said is I don't need a camera. It's of no use to me. And I went along with that mindset for a couple of months. And then I had um, a, a revelation, an epiphany of sorts. And what, two things that I realized is that a great deal of my communication is done through nonverbal ways, whether it's nodding my head or waving my hands, leaning forward, sitting back, whatever have you. And so I noticed that I was losing a lot of that effectiveness because that was no longer available to me. The other thing that I started missing significantly is that I would pick up a lot of information that was nonverbal just being in the room with folks. And so I thought, oh, my goodness, how do I get that back? And the third thing that happened was as I started paying attention, I could readily tell you know, the teams that I'm routinely engaged with who has their camera on or who doesn't have their camera on simply by how they're engaging. I share that with you to say that these are the kinds of subtle 
but some very essential skill sets that people who are blind and visually impaired not only need to develop, but need to really continue to evolve as we advance this world of hybrid work that we're all living in. And by the way, I mentioned that, that we shifted to hybrid work um, you know, a couple of years ago. We expect and we will continue to be in a hybrid workforce where anywhere between 50 and 70% of our staff are remote working at any one time. So what are the long-term benefits um, for shifting into this world of remote work? One is that the more experience that we have individually, the more experience that we have collectively with all of the remote work and the things that I've just talked about, the more skilled we'll get at it, the more um, the technologies will evolve. And so, you know, we'll, we'll get our footing under us like everybody else. And, and believe me, it's not just blind people that are struggling with this. Although we certainly have our struggles, it's, it's the whole of society. I mean, people that are fully sighted that are struggling with this kind of shift as well. The other thing that happens here is it's what we call WFH. And WFH is a, a, a euphemism, an acronym for working from home. It's that remote work. And working from home, it really addresses a number of things, especially for blind folks. So the idea of transportation to get to and from work and the time that takes, if you have that opportunity to work from home, you're certainly mitigating that as, as a barrier and certainly at, 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 at most a barrier, um, at least an inconvenience in getting to and from work, right? And WFH also has a greater support for those individuals that may need more frequent schedule or more frequent breaks in their schedule so that they're, you know, better to, to perform their job. So it offers that additional added um, benefit. The other thing that is now in today's workplace is called WFA. And so WFA is work from anywhere. So the idea being I can sit in Sacramento and if there were a job in Florida or in Germany that I was interested in and WFA was available, I literally could work from anywhere, right? As long as I had the connectivity that I required, I could do that. In fact, we're having a generation that is evolving that, you know, they're traveling around the world doing their jobs from wherever they are at that particular point, you know, that, that they need to go to work, right? And so um, all of this provides some great added schedule flexibility for um, the workplace. As we talk about this, what are the concerns that I have and the concerns that I think that we should be paying attention to when we start looking at this hybrid workforce, WFH, WFA? One, I'm greatly concerned that we're going to revert to the isolation that people who are blind and visually impaired have experienced, you know, all of, all of history. Um, we have fought long and hard to be integrated, to be included, to be part of um, all those conversations. And I think the remote work gives us that convenience. But a concern that I have is that there's that unintended consequence that we become increasingly isolated. And the other thing is, we are very much social creatures, right? We need that conversation. We need that connectivity. And, and I know that we are struggling to continue to make sure that we have that 
in our workplace, and I suspect that we're not alone. So how do we develop the, the competence to have um, that effective remote socialization and the way that keeps people as connected as they were before, if not more so? How do you do that um, across uh, time zones where that becomes a play? I think is something we got to pay a lot of attention to. And I don't think it should be something that um, evolves by happenstance. I think we need to be very intentional. We're certainly working at that here at the Department of Rehabilitation. And then at the end of the day, there's that importance of us being visible um, and being, being visible to our colleagues. There's a very powerful message that is sent to um, all of my colleagues in this department, all of our staff, all of the partners that I engage with when they see myself as somebody who's blind, navigating the environment, getting from here to there, et cetera, et cetera, really helps to break down some of the myths and some of the stereotypes that create barriers to our employment. And so there's a bit of a risk that in the remote world, that visibility will not be as prevalent and won't carry that same impact, um, that same message. So we as people who are blind and visually impaired, what is our responsibility and what is the opportunity that we have in this environment that we're in today and the environment's going to continue to evolve over the coming three, five, seven years? One, this doesn't change the need for us to have the hard skills that is necessary for any single job, right? It simply does not change that. If anything, it adds a premium to that. And I've mentioned this several times, but really increasing our digital competence becomes a very, very important, in some ways even more so, because you're probably not going to have somebody handy by that can help you navigate whatever that platform you're on or, or the Word or the Excel or deal with an error message that comes up. So the, the digital competence that we have needs to really ramp up, including how do we troubleshoot connectivity um, from, from wherever we may be, right? And then, of course, the importance, okay, um, of experience um, to prepare for in getting the job. And yesterday I was meeting with the Blind Advisory Committee, and we had a conversation around employment. And I'll tell you that one of the ongoing um, challenges that people um, who are blind and visually impaired and certainly people with all disabilities facing and getting to the workplace is that lack of work experience. And so even if the world is shifting to remote, how do we gain that work experience that develops um, all of these skills that I've mentioned and then some for us to be really effective and be really competitive in the workplace. The other thing that we need to account for is that the idea that you'd go to school and you get your degree um, and you were done, I think those days are, are moving behind us quickly. We're in an environment where we learn and relearn and relearn. Things are changing that fast. And so there's a lot of models that are standing up, which is why apprenticeships are becoming so important. And, um, and other types of training situations, just-in-time training, because as the jobs shift, um, as the demand shifts, there's this continuous need to retrain and, and be better matched between the skill that is needed 
um, and the jobs of, in, available? Um, and then how do you develop those skills? And so with all that, there's many resources that are available to the blind vision impaired. Um, obviously, we have the Department of Rehabilitation, and we are in the midst of a significant change in our own thinking about how we approach getting people ready for remote work. And so when I talk about these changes that are before us, think about them from two continuums. One is we have all of us who are here today, wherever we happen to be in, in, in our circumstances. And so how do we develop and evolve our skill sets? And two, we have all those individuals that are coming down the pipeline um, through the K-12 system, colleges, whatever have you. And how do we very quickly evolve those skill sets so that they are competitive and can readily move into the workplace? So the other thing that I'm going to do here is, is stop talking because one of my favorite parts of any presentation is that opportunity to engage with you in the Q&A. So I'm going to take a deep breath. Sarah, I'll kick this back to you and more than, more than welcome any questions that, uh, that you have. Absolutely. Christy, you are first. Thank you, Joe, for your discussion. Um, I have a question because it's been really bothering me. Yes, I, I graduated high school in 1971, and the unemployment rate among people who were blind or visually impaired was still at 70%. Over 50 years later, we are in the same place. That's a travesty. But I see another trend. And that trend is that, well, let me ask you this question. Um, Do you know how many blind or visually impaired counselors or um, support staff are uh, blind or visually impaired currently? In BFS. So how many blind? Say it one more time. How many blind or visually impaired counselors or support staff um, do you have in BFS? I, I cannot tell you how many staff we have. I can tell you here's the here's the leadership of Blindfield Services that is blind visually impaired. Um, Peter Dawson, Michael Thomas, Sue Pellbath. A number of our field managers are all individuals who are blind. And, of course, myself um, are all individuals in, in leadership roles at all layers of the organization that are blind. Exactly how many counselors? I know we have a fair number of them. I, I don't have that number. I think um, what I've been seeing, the trend is that there are very few BFS counselors that are blind or visually impaired now, and I think it's a travesty, and I would like to see DOOR do something to actively recruit uh, people who are visually impaired and blind for these positions for the, uh, I can't remember what they're called, the bachelor level positions, um, and also for office tech positions. I think it's just imperative that the Department of Rehabilitation, since it is trying to actually help people get jobs, 
that they need to role model um, that they are hiring people in in this in in this agency. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Couldn't agree with you more. And frankly, it's not just for BFS. We'll hire them any place they apply, and they're the right person for that job. Hey, Joe, it's Margie. Um, I I actually want to say something in response to Christy's question. Having served on the back and having been on a number of interview committees, and Joe has said this, and I will say this in Joe's favor, is blind people have to apply. You can't get into any job until you apply, and I've seen that over and over as part of the interviewing team for DOR, for management positions, for entry-level positions, is if you don't apply, you can't get a job, and there's not a whole much DOR can do if if blind people aren't applying. So that being said, um, Joe, I want to take a different approach. You know, I, I don't even know where the 70% comes along. I mean, it should be a little bit lower in my opinion. I, I was part of that 70%, then I became employed, then I became unemployed. Um, this number doesn't change, so I, I don't put a whole lot of weight in this. And I'm going to tell you something, that I have seen a trend that DOR can be doing a 1,000% better. And we, we had this as part of the discussion with Peter yesterday and Laura. I'm sorry, um, Jessica. I see way too many blind people becoming unemployed because of sight loss. I don't see the department doing a great job at all. I've worked myself with a couple of people, and ultimately they end up leaving their job. By the time I got in touch with these two people, they've been the DOR, the case had been closed, and they didn't get what they needed. And, you know, if we want to keep this number at 70 or lower, we need to start catching, meaning we DOR, um, and those of us that are aware of such cases, these people before they become unemployed. But once they get to DOR, your staff has to do the right thing to keep them employed, not just give them a few tools. They need training. They need to know that they can work in these jobs as a blind person, maybe mentorship, maybe hook them up with other people doing similar jobs. And I see even after they've met with DOR, they're becoming unemployed and on Social Security disability because they don't believe they can do the job. And that tells me that rehab is failing them. If they're leaving their job because of sight loss, rehab is failing them. So I'd like you to address that piece of the population, please. Uh, Margie, thank you. You have uh, no argument for me on both fronts, one that we need to serve. Um, job retention. In fact, the engagement at the Blind Advisory Committee was just simply on that front, was really, do we prioritize retention over providing services to somebody that has a job um, when we are in order of selection, as an example? And two, I do not disagree whatsoever that we need to do a better job of providing those services for retention and I would add a couple more things to that. One is that, that the retention is even going to become greater <clears throat> as we shift to this hybrid environment that, that, we're, in, that we're in the middle of. And, and the other one is we also need to, need to do a better job with the employer um, at um, understanding that that shift takes place and that that shift does not mean the individual cannot continue to be effective, um, but we know that that shift can have a bit of a curve. And so I think there's, there's a lots of room 
on those fronts and probably a few others that we haven't even talked about um, to do that. And I would also even say, Margie, um, it's something that we all should be doing where we know somebody who is in a job setting um, and they're beginning to experience that vision shift. You know, there's what's the right time to reach out, right? Um, I think there's some room for conversation there to really help people maybe reach out a little bit sooner than they have because there will be a, a learning curve. And if you're losing your vision and you're moving from a partially sighted where you had some usable vision to where you don't, as somebody who made that shift, it was not an easy shift and it was not overnight. Bob Acosta, please go ahead. First of all, I salute the Convention Planning Committee for inviting the director to speak to us, he should speak to us at every convention, because whether he likes it or not, he's a major leader in the work of uh, for disabled citizens. I have two questions. One, I was so impressed a year ago at the BAC meeting when you tackle the problem of Im- improper sexual practices by some out-of-state agencies. We passed a resolution about that. I want to know what's going on with that. Where are we with it? Is the department really... And then I see one in our own state. I won't mention the name, but it was a long article, which was very hard. Um, The second one is, what about readers for our college students? And from behind the times, I'm getting old. What can I say? Joe, you're doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Good to, good to hear your voice again. So on the sexual conduct, I mean, it's, it's obviously very entailed, but let me tell you sort of at the, at the high level what has taken place. One is the Blind Advisory Committee was um, absolutely right in raising that issue to us. Um, and, you know, I acknowledged when we met with the Blind Advisory Committee that, you know, we, we initially missed some steps in addressing that. So let's just put that out there level set. And what the department has looked at is the application of Title IX under the Department of Education and how that applies to us and to the individuals that we serve. And so a couple of things on that front. One, it absolutely applies to the Department of Rehabilitation. Two, we are ensuring that every individual that we serve not just blind and visually impaired, every individual that we serve is fully aware of their rights under Title IX. Um, Any bad behavior arising out of uh, sexual conduct there. And two, um, we are also ensuring that all of our provider systems are informed that they have that responsibility to comply with Title IX. Um, and that where they have any questions about whether Title IX applies to them, the enforcement mechanism is under the um, Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. We, however, will investigate those matters that are appropriate to do so that rise to for our attention and for us to investigate. We certainly will apply um, those provisions. In, in fact, we have been. We simply hadn't called them out. So. That's where we are on that front. On the reader front, um, as you and others may recall, um, AB5 um, eliminated um, the use of individual service providers. Um, we have been tackling that issue 
to ensure that the services that the individual needs are still available. And we've been approaching that through a series of different um, pathways to make that happen. Um, to the best of my knowledge, uh, no individual that needs a reader is not gaining the access to that reader. So that's, you know, I'll leave my comments there, you know, for now. Thank you, Bob. And next we have David Jackson. Thank you very much, um, Andrea. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, and thanks for uh, your presentation. Margie's right. Um, if blind people don't uh, apply for the position, they don't get the job, perhaps. Um, your point about um, blind people being responsible is also correct in trying to upgrade our capabilities. So <clears throat> the um, prospective employee gets hired by the company. They walk on and walk into the job and there's no technology. Where is the, uh, where is rehab and how is rehab working with the employer to facilitate the technology the new employee is, is seeking to uh, do the job? Well, thank you, David. Um, I think it's, it, it's largely going to be a case-by-case -case situation. It's going to depend on the individual and it's going to depend on the employer. Um, in some cases, um, it's going to be the employer and we're going to facilitate and, and support the employer in getting that. And there could be other cases where it's the department that does that. It's not a formula and it's not a if this um, than that because everybody's needs and all the employment um, settings are going to be just different enough where we have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. Next, we have Ju either Judy or Steve. It's Steve again. Okay. Uh, thank you, Director Xavier. Thank you for being with us as always. You've described uh, a number of changes in what I'll call the ecology of employment, which taken all together really uh, are almost seismic in their extent. Uh, in a certain sense, though, those provide an opportunity for a reset. Uh, and in that respect, you've described some of the issues that you're thinking about in terms of the work of your department. But I'd like to know if you could give us any specifics as to measures that uh, your department has undertaken or in terms of a formalized planning process that your department is undertaking to deal with some of the changes that you've identified uh, or some of the other changes that are occurring. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention a couple, for example. Uh, uh, how, for example, does your department adapt to the changing landscape of job application? Uh, how do you deal with the fact that the criteria for employment are more and more being determined by algorithms? How do you deal with the fact that gig workers are not employees within the definition of the law? Uh, do you have plans for dealing with these and a host of other issues that you so correctly and so uh, presciently, I would say, identified? Yeah, Steve, there's a couple of sort of different threads to what you said. Um, I think in terms of the use of algorithms, a longstanding issue, great barrier to employment. And so it's interesting that you bring that up today because it was either, it was either yesterday or today that I received um, a, dis a, a distribution from the Department of Justice yes. that really yes. called out this very issue and said, hey, yes. hey, companies, be aware. Um, and so 
you know, obviously something that we always continue to educate our employer community about. It's something that we as an employer make sure that we don't have those barriers that you're alluding to in place. Okay. Um, and it's something that we're doing a lot of advocacy, especially with the state who is the largest employer um, to make sure that those barriers are not there. Um, there's many, many other things that we have underway that, that we're doing. In some ways, we're modeling the way. In some other ways, we are pushing the way. So, for example, um, when we talk about providing the opportunity for people to remote work, um, for our staff, that includes providing the accommodations um, at home that they would otherwise need at work, right? Um, and so we're we're not only modeling that way, but we're really working with um, departments um, and, and civil service, local governments to make sure that that is the case, as well as with the employer community. So, um, and there's a lot, lot more work to be done on that front. I think the one major thing that is really concerning me is really how quickly the use of technology, it's not that the use of technology has evolved because it, it was all here, but I mean, it, ju it jumped, just jumped immensely overnight. I mean, look at this. We went from conferences face-to-face -to, -face to, well, what, in the second year, third year of virtual conferences. Um, and frankly, we're getting pretty damn good at it compared to our first effort, right? which is, it's not an insult. I mean, we're all in the same boat, okay? So lots more work to be done on that front, and I don't have magic answers on any of these things. Well, thank you, and all I can say is, is good luck. I'm sure we're all rooting for you to succeed. Jordan right now is the last one. All right, we're going to have Jordan go, and then, Joe, we're going to have you wrap on up. I had a question. Uh, what if you see the job description from the Department of Rehabilitation and it requires a lot of education and experience that you don't have, like a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. So, so that there's two pieces to you. I'm gonna I'm gonna approach your question from two different pieces. Number one is those those requirements that are there wow. today um, are not requirements that the department sets. They're set through our human resources department. And so um, here's what I would say to you as a job seeker. If that's not a match for your experience, then seek out that match for your experience and get in the door because it creates other opportunities for you to advance. Um, and as far as those existing um, qualifications, that is one of the efforts that's underway in the state is to really look at some of these, frankly, outdated qualifications and really lean into experience as yeah. a vehicle to get people into the jobs, not just the credentialing and the training. And I'm not putting down credentialing and training. It's not a one or the other. It's, it's both. How do we leverage both? Absolutely. Thank you, Jordan. All right, Joe. So if you want to give us any final words of motivation, words of thought, a call to action, and then if you want to stick around for our, our little surprise in between, you, you definitely can. It's kind of fun. Okay. Um, 
Am I the surprise? <laughs> uh, no, our surprise oh, is at the get. Don't worry. I'm, All right, good, good. Yeah. Yeah. Then I'm yeah, don't, I might I would never do that to you. <laughs> okay. Um, well, just again, I started by just applauding the council for the work you're doing and everybody for being here and being part of it. And just, I will do that again. Um, advocacy organizations, membership organizations are going through the same change. Uh, and we need to continue to evolve, but we also need to continue to be supportive. And so to the leadership that is leading the way, thank you. To all of you um, who are not just here, but those folks you're engaged with, um, I will still say that employment is an indispensable element of good health. And I think employment is something that everybody can and should pursue. It's about finding the right job and having the right supports. And that leads to the opportunity to live in the community that you choose um, in the way that you choose. And so I just cannot say enough about that. I'm always glad to be here. I look forward to coming back in, in future forums and, and engage in the conversation. And thank you for inviting me, Sarah, and good luck with the rest of the conference. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Joe. And it, it is. It's all about power of choice. Yep. You know, I think that's the biggest thing. But yeah, stick around. It's fun. It's not going to take too long either. Um, <laughs> so I'm wondering, do we have Regina here? Hello. So for those of you who don't know, this is Regina Brink, and she is the ACB Capital Chapter President, as well as the President of Inclusive Diversity of California. And she's here putting on like a different hat. And so, Regina, you want to give us a, a little intro before we give everybody a little tease? Yes. So the Capital Chapter decided to work with our local uh, developmental delay and other um, neurological spectrum agency who has a studio, E Plus Studios. And so we worked with them and we put together a radio drama from the very beginning we even it's based on a story by hg wells but we generated a more modernized script and everybody there was a whole bunch of people in the chapter um who contributed to that so i want to thank everybody including the voice actors uh there were about 10 of them and we had volunteer drivers that worked with us to get us to the recording studio. It's amazing. And the amazing people who recorded and worked with the sound. And it came together and we have the country of the blind and we have a little sample. So you can hear just a little bit of what it might sound like. All right. So Rob, can you cue that on up for us? Yeah, let me give it a shot here. I discovered this story by H.G. Wells and knew I had to produce it. I found out it was a radio drama. More than 300 miles from Chimborazo, in the wildest waste of Ecuador's Andes, there lies that mysterious mountain valley cut off from the world of men, the country of the blind. Tony, but I said to myself, well, the fools must be blind. Blind? Could it be that I have fallen into the country of the blind? What strange words he uses. They don't mean anything, and he smells like a llama. Our fathers have told us that men may be made by forces of nature. 
It is the warmth of things and the moisture and the rottenness. We'd better take him to my father and the Council of Elders. Please be careful. Why? If you don't learn quickly enough and stop saying these crazy things, they won't be so nice to you. They might be so angry. I'll hurt you. I swear I will. Look at the, put down that shovel. Leave me alone. Oh, Marina. Be strong. I know you're brave. Just think of us together. Forever. No, I won't have it. In the country of the blind, a one-eyed man is king. Sponsored by the ACB Capital Chapter of the California Council of the Blind in the studios of Employment Plus, DDSO. That is great. So when do we get to hear the whole voices in there? Do we get yeah. to hear the Yeah, so Regina, tell folks where where they can listen, when they can listen as well. May 17th, that's this Tuesday, 7:30 p.m. Pacific. And that link that Sarah sent out for pre-convention, that's the link. I'm sure it'll be sent out again that you use to listen to the whole drama. And when, and I'm is, sorry, Sarah, um, Regina, when is it again? May 17th. That's this Tuesday, 730 okay, thank p.m. You. Thank you. And, and Sarah, if Yeah. I was just going to say, those are amazing actors other than Jeff, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was fun. You had to stick around. Is that not cool? Well, that was great. It's so cool. It's so cool. It's so exciting. And and so if you are not on any of these CCB lists and do not get all of the gazillion emails that I send out, yes, everyone, you are super welcome. Please, please, please email convention.ccb at gmail.com. Put in your subject line, COTB, your country of the blind, or send me that pre-convention link. Because it's really going to be post-convention, but the link is still called pre-convention because, you know, that's the way life works. Um but we definitely, definitely would like folks to come and join. It's, it, you know, the whole thought process is that we can take a minute and we can sit and we can relax. We can hear our friends doing some amazing work. And so I just want to congratulate Regina and all of the ACB Capital Chapter on such an amazing job. I haven't heard the whole thing. I just heard the teaser, just like all of you. And I won't lie. I played every once in a while just to smile because it's so cool. So thank you, Regina. Any other things you want to let us know? No, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Rob and Steve. Thanks. Oh, absolutely. Teamwork makes a dream work. You know, we, we build it all together. That's absolutely <laughs> sure. And, and you know, and, and it, it, I, I love the fact that you're like, I was on a budget meeting. So it's so funny. You were not like having lunch. You were on a budget meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're doing two things at once, right? Yeah, that's what I do for recreation. I listen to the government <laughs> talk about the budget. <laughs> Don't worry. I know we're, we're, we're nerds. That's okay. But we're nerds together. All right. So thank you so much, Regina. And you guys remember, don't forget May 17th, 730 PM. 
And I believe I have heard our next presenter show up, Mr. Ron Brooks. So I am just for um, for those of you who cannot see me and those of you who can, my apologies. Um, I am um, wearing a, uh, a plaid shirt and a cowboy hat, um, which I guess I'm indoors. So I'm going to take the hat off because it's impolite. But um, we are going to talk about target practice and the, the name of this presentation is target practice, determining which transit issues are local, which are federal, and how to hit where you're aiming, which is pretty important. Uh, before I jump in, let me just say um, this, this presentation was uh, created for uh, this conference, um, so hopefully you'll find it useful. Um, and we're gonna have lots of time as we go through for questions. And so um, if it, is it okay if um, I am stop at certain points and invite questions, or would you rather I go straight to the end? I have, um, do you have Andrea here? So you just tell Andrea what you would like for her to do. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right. And I'll try to describe as we go. Uh, there's lots of pictures in here. So we will, uh, we'll have a little bit of fun and here we go. So on this, uh, this slide here, um, I have two hats um, and I wear two hats. I have a, a black hat that says uh, transit industry, uh, 29 years. <laughs> uh, and I have a white hat, which is life uh, experience as uh, a blind, low vision person. And it's my whole life since I was born. Um, so, so I have, you know, I've, I have, uh, I grew up as a, a person with low vision, uh, lost my eyesight as a teenager, um, and spent my time, I actually came to graduate school uh, in San Francisco in 1990. I was actually an ACB scholarship recipient uh, in 1990, and I've been involved in ACB ever since. Uh, and uh, so, so you know, it's a long time in, in the ACB. I uh, spent a number of years in the CCB and chapters up in the Bay Area. And um, yeah, really, you guys are, are close to my heart. And um, I'm really excited to be here uh, talking to you all about something that is my passion. So that black hat, the transit industry hat, I put that on in 1993. I began my transit career in the San Francisco Bay Area at BART, uh, working on uh, accessible uh, transit services. There, what I was doing at BART initially was working on helping improve key, uh, key station accessibility uh, and also working on accessibility projects at new BART stations. They're not new anymore. Uh, if you're in the Bay Area and you're familiar with the uh, Daily City Station uh, and the SFO Extension, and you know, these are old stations now, but when I was there, those weren't even holes in the ground, and we were talking about how to make them accessible. Um, I then got into paratransit back in the days before uh, there was an East Bay paratransit. Um, I was uh, involved in working with BART to try to figure out how to comply with ADA. These were new requirements back then. Uh, since then, I'm on the slide, I say I've moseyed all over the country uh, dealing with accessible transit and paratransit. Uh, spent some time in Florida, uh, some time in uh, uh, New Mexico, uh, back in California, um, and then up in Illinois. And, and uh, we, our present homestead is in just over the border in Phoenix. And I got to tell you, Arizonans really do believe uh, that California is another country. And I suspect that y'all feel uh, the same way about us. So... Um, and we've been here for about 15 years. Uh, but my work takes me all over the country. Uh, I've, uh, I have a consultancy called Accessible Avenue, uh, where we are really working with uh, the industry to try to improve accessibility 
uh, and mobility for, uh, for all disabled people, including people who are blind or visually impaired. Um, and as of Monday, I'm going to start a new uh, second thing, uh, which is working with a, an on-demand paratransit company called Userve, uh, which is, has a very small footprint in California right now, but uh, it's a growing company that's doing on-demand paratransit, which is something that I uh, believe that the time has come uh, to start pushing into uh, the industry. So we can talk more about that if, you know, later if, we, if, we w- if y'all wish. So... On this slide, I've, it's called a rugged landscape, and I've got a picture here of a rough, uh, uh, high desert landscape. There's boulders and scrub brush and a blue sky with white, fluffy clouds. This looks like any, just about anywhere in the desert southwest. Um, and, and transit is a rough landscape. It's very confusing. It's very rugged. There are many agencies with overlapping uh, responsibilities. You have uh, federal and state uh, organizations and governments that establish regulations and laws that govern transit. Uh, they provide uh, funding, and it's fairly limited funding, but it has lots and lots of strings attached. Uh, you have um, regional and metropolitan planning organizations that essentially govern the planning process. They prioritize transit construction projects and infrastructure. Uh, they uh, work on short and long-range transit plans um, that really govern how transit is going to look over the next, say, five to ten years in most areas. Um, and they may work with local agencies to try to coordinate service policies and procedures. That doesn't always happen. It happens in some regions, and it happens with very mixed results. Uh, some places are a little bit more coordinated than others, uh, and some are quite a bit less coordinated than others. And uh, you know, I would say the LA, there's some level of coordination. Uh, San Francisco Bay Area is a lot less coordinated. So, um, and then you have municipal governments. So, transit agencies and local governments, um, they are really the people who make most operational decisions around transit, and they're the ones who pay for the majority of the cost of service. So, uh, so they they have a pretty big stake, and because they're the ones who uh, pay most of the cost. Uh, and because they are the closest to the taxpayers and the voters, they tend to be very cautious about doing things that they're not required by one of these other agencies to do because they have to answer to people that pay their, t- that pay their bills. So on this slide, um, I basically have it's easy to get lost, and I've got a picture uh, of a cowboy. He's uh, riding a horse uh, in a uh, really in a kind of a deserted landscape. Uh, he's leading a couple of riderless horses, um, you know, and, and there's no one else around. Um, and, and really, these are the questions. Yeah, these are, this is why it is so easy to get lost in transit. Um, what is actually required and what is not? Um, who has the authority to make the decisions? Uh, and then most important, I think, for us is where should we direct our advocacy efforts? You know, who do we talk to? Uh, about any given decision, where do we have the most leverage uh, to try to get certain things dealt with? And that's really what we're going to talk about. Uh, so here's our agenda. Um, I've got a, a blue and white uh, target, I'm sorry, a black and white target board. It's like a bullseye. And in the bullseye, I've got a, a blue arrow. So um, hopefully we'll hit the, hit the target today. Uh, first, I want to s- summarize the regulations uh, that impact transit. Uh, I want to review uh, ADA paratran- uh, transit paratransit requirements a little bit. Um, 
I want to list some of the transit decisions that happen at the local level. Um, and it's a pretty impressive list, I'll have you know. Uh, I want to describe the implications uh, of this structure for the CCB, as well as for local chapters and individuals. Uh, and then we will, um, I, on the agenda, I have it listed last, but as we go through this presentation, I definitely want to take time uh, to answer your questions and have conversation uh, as much as time permits. And I would ask, um, is it Andrea, um, that if I am getting close to about 15 minutes, um, give me uh, a holler uh, so that I don't go too far. Um, and also, I have a, you know, we have a door prize to give away during this session as well. Um, it is, I think it's a pretty cool door prize. So if you can um, stick through the end, um, it'll be, uh, it'll be worth it. So let's jump in and I'm, and we will um, stop. I'm going to go through a lot of regulatory kind of stuff. So we'll have, we'll have some times to stop here. If y'all have questions, you know, feel free. So, um, so let me just start with federal regulations. And I've got a, it's a great picture here. There is an old Western sheriff. Uh, he's got a gun holster. He's wearing a leather vest and a cowboy hat. Uh, I mean, he's looking over his shoulder with a very jaundiced eye as though he's looking for trouble. So yeah, he's your federal government. He's, he's looking out. Um, he's watching. Um, so the federal government, even though it doesn't deliver, um, as we'd say in the old West, a lick of transportation, they sure pass a, uh, they pass a passel of transportation laws. Um, first and foremost, the transportation spending bill. Um, it goes by different names, um, but the spending bill is basically um, the bill that governs, it's, a, it's typically about a five-year spending horizon, and it really sets the transit spending priorities. Um, it establishes the levels of spending. Uh, it establishes how the money can be spent, how it's apportioned. Um, it, it's really the Bible with regard to funding. The other thing that it does is it defines kind of what um, what lands in what categories. So if something is not in this bill, it is hard to spend federal money on it. Um, so I'll give you an example of a positive. Um, in this particular transit spending bill, there is a pilot program for one-stop paratransit for people that need to make a stop on the way to or from wherever they're going. Um, it's not a very big pilot, but there is funding actually called out uh, so that the, the industry can do some pilot testing around this. And uh, there actually is in Los Angeles um, a very small pilot around this right now. And I'm not sure if they're using federal funds. I don't think they are. But, um, but, but you know, when those kinds of programs land in the transportation spending bill, it creates opportunities um, to, uh, to advocate on the local level. Um, the, the second thing that I want to list here is the National Trans uh, Transit Database. Um, that sounds really boring, um, and it really is boring, except that it's also really, really important. Uh, the National Transit Database is a set of statistics that federal uh, transit agencies who receive federal funds are required to fill out uh, as a condition of receiving their funding. They have to do it. Um, and it's really important for two reasons. Uh, one, it establishes, basically, uh, if you count things, you know, like trips, miles, hours of service, vehicles, cost, um, if it allows you to count it, then you count it and it affects your funding formula. So it affects the percentage of funding that your agency gets. So agencies like to do things that the National Transit Database tracks and requires uh, them to report. And they don't like to do things that the National Transit Database does not track. Anything that it doesn't track doesn't really count toward their funding allocation. So 
um, it's, it's less appealing for them to do those things. Um, the other thing that it does is it gathers statistics. Um, and it's, it's a public, you know, it's a public database. You can go look at it. It's always a couple of years out of date. Uh, but there are statistics there about how many trips, what, uh, by mode. So there's, there's transit, there's paratransit. Um, you, you can look at all this stuff. You can look at safety. You can look at, um, uh, you know, cost per mile, cost per hour, cost per trip, all these different metrics that the industry looks at. They're all there and you can look at them and, and see, uh, in theory, you know, you can compare systems with each other. Uh, and, and, you know, that, so that's there and it's important and it governs a lot of the activities that transit agencies choose to do. Another thing that the federal government does is, is FTA, it's Federal Transit Administration, which is who regulates the industry, uh, substance abuse training, testing, and reporting requirements. Um, this is a big deal because anybody who provides public transit that is federally funded uh, with some small caveats is required to um, meet the requirements of FTA, uh, substance abuse training, testing, and reporting. Um, and this is one of the barriers to entry for things like Uber and Lyft because they don't provide this, they don't comply with these requirements and they really have no interest in complying with these requirements. So there, there are small ways that they can get involved, but um, that there are, it's a barrier to entry for any company that is not willing to meet these requirements. Um, and transit takes it very seriously. They have to report on them every year. They have to provide training. They have to provide the data. Um, so it's taken pretty seriously. There are federal labor protections uh, that transit agencies have to meet. And really what these are designed to do is protect uh, workers and particularly organized workers. Um, so if a transit agency wants to privatize a service, let's say, um, they, there are very strict rules on how they're able to do that. They have to protect jobs that are held by public agency employees who are, who are in uh, collective bargaining units. Um, so there, those protections are uh, built into federal law as um, in addition to everything else. There are federal third-party contracting guidelines. So the federal government does not tell a transit agency who they have to do business with, but it does tell them what the rules of contracting, uh, you know, some basic rules that they have to meet around competition, um, around the fact that you can't have a bid without pricing. Uh, there are some requirements around uh, just yeah, how you have to run a procurement process, there has to be a protest procedure, um, you know, all these things are established in federal law, uh, or in federal regulation, actually, and transit agencies do uh, have to take those seriously. Um, when I talk about the U.S. Civil Rights Act, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 does a couple of things. I mean, we all know about the fact that it, uh, it guarantees or prohibits discrimination based on things like race, ethnicity, gender, age, um, but it also requires transit agencies or prohibits transit agencies from either implementing services or eliminating services that have a disproportionately negative impact on one group over another group. So if a transit agency uh, wants to, say, for example, eliminate service, they have to look at does that decision disproportionately impact uh, people who are in a, a class of people that is protected under the U.S. Civil Rights Act. So it, it really kind of gives them some parameters that they have to follow. And there's some procedures around reporting and around public hearings and participation that they have to meet 
uh, in order to do those things. Um, so, so they, they do pay attention to it. Um, some agencies pay a little more attention to it. Some agencies check the box, but um, it is something they have to pay attention to. Um, the ADA and the Federal Rehab Act, uh, we're going to talk about the ADA in, in some detail, uh, but the Federal Rehab Act, um, which predated it, uh, really establishes the idea of you can't discriminate against people with disabilities uh, in programs that receive federal funds. This is the law that established the requirement for transit to offer discounts on bus, on bus and light rail uh, for seniors uh, and for people with disabilities. So that 50% or more fare discount that you get uh, as a person with a disability, if you use the bus or the train um, in your local community, that comes from the Federal Rehab Act, and it specifically does not apply to paratransit. And there are other federal laws and regulations that I'm not even going to get into because they're, they're, they're detailed, but things like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and Buy America provisions and, and the, um, there's requirements around doing business with countries that do business with Iran and other uh, recognized uh, terror states. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of regulation that agencies have to work with. Uh, and uh, so keep that in mind. And then we have California. And um, I've got a picture on this slide, two rubber stamps leaning against a stack of papers, sounds like a government office. One of them says regulations and the other says rules and California layers on a bunch uh, that adds to the federal pile I just went through. Uh, you have additional clean air uh, and emission standards uh, from the California Air Resources Board uh, and elsewhere. Um, you have mandatory uh, fleet and facility inspections of public transit operators by the California Highway Patrol. Uh, there are additional labor protections in California around uh, lunch breaks, um, around um, you have some protections for additional paid time off for COVID. Um, so the state has a lot of extra um, rules that, that frankly make doing business in California cost a little more. Uh, and, and that's not a, a complaint. It's just a reality. Um, one of the things that you recently had added to the pile was Proposition 22, uh, which provides some protections, I guess, or basic protections for drivers of, of TNCs like Uber and Lyft, um, which actually created, uh, you know, raised the cost of those services just a little bit um, to, uh, in order to guarantee some, some benefits to those drivers. Um, you have additional accessibility standards like uh, Title 24. Uh, and I think there are probably many others. There are people who can speak to this better than I can. And then finally, you have local living wage ordinances uh, and probably other things as well. But uh, you have uh, several communities in California have uh, minimum wage ordinances that go above either the federal statutory or the state uh, rules. So all of these things are rules that transit must um, you know, operate in, in accordance with. So let me just stop there. That's a lot of... Um, uh, minutia and just see if anybody has any questions. Okay, Andy, go ahead and unmute. Rana, I don't know if I misunderstood something you said, but and that's what I want to clear up now. Did you did you say that uh, companies like Uber and Lyft cannot uh, partner with paratransit agencies because of certain things that they won't live uh, yeah, up to? Yeah, yeah. Let me clarify. They can partner under certain circumstances. Um, so, for example. The, the, the issue I was talking about was federal substance abuse testing and training uh, requirements that the federal government layers onto public transit agencies. 
um, and any contractor who provides uh, public transit services. Um, the way that some providers, and this would apply to Uber, this would apply to Lyft, this would apply to taxi cabs, um, is if a customer, excuse me, if a customer has the ability to opt into a service, um, they can choose to you know, participate or not, um, then an agency can partner with these companies in a limited way as long as the customer has the ability to opt in or opt out of the service. And this is an area that actually um, has, there's, there is a, a lot of, um, I wouldn't call it uncertainty, but there's, there's difference of opinion within the industry on what that means. For example, if you opt in once and say, I'm going to use this service, um, does that mean that the agency can work with uh, these providers and, and that's it, you've opted in and now that's it? Other agencies take the position that, that the opt-in has to be kind of on every trip. Um, other agencies believe that, that um, there has to be a choice between providers on every trip. And there's not a lot of clarity at this point for the federal government over what it means. All we know for sure is that services that do not meet FTA requirements can be used as long as the customer has the ability to choose or not choose to use them. Ron, this is Andrea, and I want to make a quick comment. And this may not be exactly what you're talking about, but I think it's probably related. Mm -hmm. I have um, uh, transportation provided by my medical insurance. It's because mm -hmm. I have Medicare, uh -huh. Secure Horizons, and it's through them. I get mm -hmm. so many trips a year mm -hmm. uh, for either medical appointments or to go to the pharmacy to pick up prescriptions. Mm -hmm. And they use a lot of private contractors, but they are using Lyft and Uber more and more. Mm -hmm. And the interesting part of this is when I started with them two years ago, three years ago, I was told that HIPAA prevented them from putting me in a Lyft or Uber vehicle because if I was by myself, because I could not visually identify the driver and confirm that that was the right person who was picking me up. Well, that seems to have changed because now... They just put me in Uber and Lyft all the time. Right. So let me clarify and, that um, medical transportation is not covered. Uh, we're not talking about that. So Okay. It's just interesting about, to me. Yeah. No, it's, there are, at last count, 130 federal departments, and, and there, there are 130 different federal programs that provide some level of funding for transportation. Um, mm. And they are... Um, and they all have different rules. Um, they're not all the same. When I'm talking today, I'm talking about public transportation provided by public transit agencies and authorities. Um, and in some very limited instances, you may have a transit agency that provides service for Medi-Cal, for example. Um, but for the most part, almost without exception, this does not apply to Medi-Cal. It doesn't apply to Medicare. And it doesn't apply to private uh, health care insurance. Thank you. And that's a good catch because, it, you know, it, it is a confusing landscape and you know, just defining what is public transit. So public transit for this presentation is strictly things that are provided by public transit agencies and authorities. Um, and that's it. And it could be operated by contractors, but it's, but it's public, it's funded by public transit. Okay, you have another hand. I don't know if you want to take it now. Yeah, it's fine. Okay, Debbie. Hi, Ron. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, my question is like like my city has mm -hmm. it itself and a little bit of the surrounding area around mm -hmm. it. Mm 
mm-hmm. and it has a service that they call Dash. I know it's not Dash everywhere. Now, they'll go out of the way further than what they propose to be their coverage area um, to take me to the doctors. Mm-hmm. And in my applying for service from them, they automatically approve me if I have an access account. In this case, it's you know access for Southern California and mm-hmm. Southern region. Mm-hmm. So, is is that um, is that federally funded? <clears throat> is that why that's those two are connected? Uh, it's a great question, um, and you do have this a lot, particularly in the LA area. You have a lot of um, you have LA Access, which serves the whole kind of LA County region, and it you know kind of touches into uh, you know the bordering counties just a little bit. But it's basically LA County, and then you have a lot of communities in Los An- in Los Angeles County that have community dial rides or dashes or whatever. That, you know, they they go by a lot of different names. Those programs are typically um, funded. Uh, pretty much extent, pretty much by the city itself. They may have some community block grant money that's federal, or they may have some, um, yeah, they may do some other things that bring in some other federal money, but it's probably not uh, federal transit money. Um, and they typically do not have to meet uh, the, the requirements that transit has to meet. Which, which, by the way, means that those services are also not manda- mandated at all. I mean, typically those are, are determined locally. A local community decides that they want to have some additional service. It's, a lot of times those programs have been around for a long time and they were started for seniors uh, and they've just been kind of kept around. Um, or maybe it's a case where a city doesn't feel that the regional uh, paratransit system meets all of the needs of its constituents. And so it has its own program that kind of supplements uh, what a regional paratransit provider does. Debbie, you had another question. Go ahead. Um, let's see if I can state this correctly. Um, and in terms of the funding and how, what kind of service I receive, yes, LA County versus uh, Orange County. And mm-hmm. I have, <laughs> I have, have been lucky to have full service in Orange County. Even though I live in LA County, mm-hmm. but in part because I worked in Orange County, mm-hmm. is that you know does is there is that a tax kind of a thing? Now this is Orange County um, access in the same way as as LA counties. It's just yeah. you know no, it does not have, No, it doesn't have to do with your taxes. Um, we'll talk about paratransit eligibility in a minute. Well, oh, a few okay. minutes. Um, but no, that, that is actually not, um, it doesn't have anything to do with what you pay. You can actually be eligible in lots of places at once. Um, and that's perfectly fine. So thank you. Why don't we jump into, um, a little bit more specifically the ADA requirements for public transit. Um, and I got to change slides here. Eh, Hopefully I'm on the right slide. ADA requirements uh, for fixed route, uh, transit. And the first bullet here I say is what it is and what it ain't. Let me just explain what that means. Um, when the ADA was adopted back in 1990, uh, and the regs came into effect in 1992, but when it was written, there, there was most transit agencies provided fixed route public transit. It was buses, maybe some light rail, 
Um, and, and maybe they had a little bit of other stuff, but basically you had a bus network um, and you had maybe had some light rail stations. And that was what, that's what most agencies offered. And so what, so the ADA, and when you get to, down to talk about paratransit, um, it's tied to fixed route. So it's really important to know what fixed route transit is. Fixed route is local bus service that operates on a, on a fixed schedule and that operates during a base period of service. Let me tell you the, some of the things that are not considered fixed route transit because these were not significant pieces of service in 1990. They are much more significant now. Um, microtransit did not exist in 1990. It wasn't even a concept. So microtransit, which you're starting to see some, Sacramento has some microtransit. Um, there's a little bit of microtransit in the Bay Area and Contra Costa County. Um, there's probably some, some that I don't know about. Microtransit is not uh, considered fixed route transit. Um, express bus service. So a bus that if you're in an outlying suburb and you take like almost like a, an over the road bus or, a, you know, a, even if even if it's a transit bus, but you get it at like a park and ride or maybe at a train station and it goes straight downtown and it only runs in the mornings, it, it, you know, to the city and in the evenings back out. That's commuter service. That is not considered fixed route transit. So when we get to talk about paratransit in a little bit, that's an important distinction. So let's talk specifically about fixed route public transit. Um, and this is stuff that a lot of you probably already know. So I'm not going to spend much time on it unless you have questions. Um, there are accessibility standards for fleets and facilities. Basically, it has to be accessible to and usable by people with disabilities as defined by the law. Um, there are requirements for audio and visual delivery of, uh, of a route's destination if the route if it's at a stop serving multiple routes. So if you're at a downtown transit center, the transit agency has to make destination announcements uh, on each bus or you know each train that serves that area. Uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, it is a requirement that they do so. Uh, of course, stop announcements, we've been talking about those back since, well, I, as long as I've been in the industry, so probably way before that as well. Um, transit agencies are required to announce stops uh, and they can do that either by the driver making the announcement or by technology um, at, major, at major stops, at transfer points, points of interest, and anywhere that a person with a disability requests. So um, that is something that the law does require them to do. Um, priority seating near the front of buses and near entrance doors of rail cars. Um, one of the things about this that's important to keep in mind is they're required to reserve the seats they are not permitted to force people to move uh, so that a person with a disability can occupy the seat. Um, and it's important to know that because we don't, you know, a lot of people have hidden disabilities. It's not the transit agencies. Um, they don't have the ability to know who might need that seat or who might not. All they are responsible for doing is designating the seats as priority seats um, and asking people to make them available to people with disabilities who need them and seniors. Um, deploying uh, the lift or the ramp upon request, and that's for any person. Um, you do not have to be in a mobility device. You do not have to be in a wheelchair. Uh, if your system has kneelers, um, it's not required by law because kneelers didn't really exist in 1990. Um, but but I, certainly when I talk to transit agencies, I treat that the same way. Uh, anything that allows people to eat more easily and more accessibly board 
uh, if they have the technology, uh, they're, they're supposed to use it for any person who needs it um, upon request. Um, so here's uh, here, guaranteeing access for service animals. I mean, people with service animals. I mean, I don't think most transit agencies on their fixed route transit system have a problem with this. Usually it's pretty good. Um, if anything, we have the opposite problem of too many uh, transit agencies allowing people to bring animals that are not service animals who aren't under control and who create a hazard for those of us who have service animals. Um, but, but the agencies are required to guarantee access for service animals. Um, that is a topic all by itself. Um, so I won't camp there unless somebody really wants to. Um, access to customer facing information. This is an interesting one. Um, the Department of Transportation, which regulates transit, has never been super clear about what this means. Um, and, you know, back when everything was written down, if an agency had a call center, they were, con you know, that, they were golden. They could just do that and that was fine. Now that agencies are moving more and more toward online information, digital, uh, mobile apps, uh, digital payment, um, this is getting a little bit less clear. Um, Transit agencies are putting up websites that aren't always accessible. They're releasing mobile apps that don't always work very well. Um, and people are getting frustrated. And now what we're starting to see is the U.S. Department of Justice, which, also, which reserves the right to step in if it chooses, is now starting to pay attention to digital accessibility um, by public agencies. And that would, that would potentially include transit. Um, they have intervened in the past. It's still not clear if they're going to intervene again or if they're going to intervene in a bigger way. But I think this is an area where um, we have the opportunity and we may have the timing uh, to start to really push a little bit harder uh, on digital accessibility because I think the, the Department of Justice is friendly to this issue right now. So this is something that, you know, we can certainly, again, this is a topic that can kind of take over a meeting, but um, you do have the right to customer-facing information. And I would argue that you have the right to, to that information when it's presented digitally or in a mobile app. You, you can assert a right to have that uh, app or that website be accessible. Uh, effective maintenance of accessibility-related equipment. Um, that is a requirement in the law. So if you have a stop announcement system and it never works, uh, there actually is an expectation that you should fix it. Um, so, you know, those when you're on a bus and stops aren't being announced because it's broken, it's not sufficient for the driver to just mumble that it's broken. Um, they have to either maintain the equipment or the driver has to make the announcements. Uh, and then finally, appropriate training uh, for people uh, who have a responsibility for delivering service. They, they have to be trained appropriately to work with people with disabilities uh, and to deliver the agency's responsibilities under the ADA. Um, so it is, it is critical that training be provided uh, and be provided in a way that makes it effective. And if an, if an agency staff is routinely not doing a very good job, uh, that probably, um, you know, is an issue for training. Any questions about fixed route transit requirements under ADA before I you, go to paratransit? You do have a hand. Okay, Shana. Okay, you, you said that microtransit isn't fixed route transit, but what is it? Microtransit is basically a, an on-demand service for the general public that operates with an app. So, tip, so imagine a small community like a suburb that's near a transit, like maybe a train station, and there's not enough people to really run like a bus. 
So the agency will contract with a third party, or maybe they'll run it themselves with some technology. They'll put out a vehicle um, and they'll run that service and it's on demand with an app. Um, and usually you can call and request it too. Um, often those services, the, those, so that's microtransit. There is no requirement to use paratransit um, in that same area. Um, microtransit is not fixed route. It doesn't run on a schedule. It doesn't run on a preset route. So, the, so it is not fixed route. Let me just clarify. It is microtransit. It's not fixed route. It's micro. That's what it is. It is its own thing. It didn't exist in 1990 when the law was written. So the transit agencies have to make their services accessible to people with disabilities. Um, so for example, with microtransit, if a, if a system has an app that's not accessible, they have to make a phone option available. If they have vehicles that aren't wheelchair accessible, they, have, they may use paratransit only for people who can't use those vehicles. Um, it is not what all I'm meaning to tell you is that it is not fixed route. It doesn't carry a requirement for paratransit to be operated in the same area. Someone else had a question. Uh, Ron, my question is, um, is um, Metrolink services like that considered fixed route? And the reason I ask that is because uh, LA Access, as you know, a lot of our complaints uh, center around long trips with them, and mm -hmm. their response has always been an Access trip can take as long as uh, the same trip on. It used to be the bus or the train. Um, I don't know, four or five years ago, they changed that to just the bus, and that significantly increased the uh, amount of time that you know we can be in an access vehicle because uh, there's a lot of trips in LA that are faster if they're a combination of bus and, and Metrolink. So my understanding, and I've ridden Metrolink, my understanding is Metrolink is a train. It is, it is, it's a big train that runs on like a track, and you climb up in it, and it, and it, you know, choo choo, and it runs down the tracks. So it's a train, right? If it's a train, it's not fixed route. They, okay. they are within their legal right um, to do that. Um, the exception, so if you have light rail, okay, because typically light rail operates within an urban setting, and like Sacramento has light rail, uh, San Jose has light rail. Um, uh, I think LA, I mean, doesn't LA have some light rail? So light rail, that's its own, that typically is viewed as, as fixed route service because it's serving a community. Um, but Metrolink is more like commuter rail, and it's not covered. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't carry a paratransit requirement. Not the answer I wanted to hear, but thank you. Yep, we've got several hands. So, Ron, you okay. tell me. Let's take uh, three and then keep going. I just okay. be careful with time. Okay, area code six two six. You may unmute. I, am I unmuted, Andrea? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead, Pam. Hi, Andrea. Hi. Hi. Hi, Ron, and I don't believe Arizona is another country. I love it. I wish I could be there. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, my question has to do with what you were mentioning regarding uh, reserving seating, reserved seating, I guess. Mm -hmm. And you were saying that uh, there's an announcement to reserve seating for seniors or disabled, um, but if someone takes a seat, we don't know if their disability is hidden. So, in effect, there's not really a way to reserve, right? It's not reserved seating, it's priority seating. So all it means is they designate it with a sign. And, and, and most systems also make announcements. Um, and the, the law requires signs. It doesn't even require announcements. Um, and, and the agency is not um, allowed to require people to move. So it's really kind of on the honor system. I, I will tell you that 
and it can be embarrassing, quite frankly. Um, sometimes drivers <laughs> will just, you know, because the law doesn't actually require them to drive the bus. Um, there are drivers out there, and I'm not sure I advise this um, necessarily, but they will literally park the bus and say, fine, I'm not moving the bus. Um, I can't tell you to move, but I'm not moving either. And sometimes passengers will get involved and ask people to move, and it gets a little bit um, awkward. Um, but, but, but yeah, that, that is the reality. Uh, it is not something the agencies can, can really enforce. They can only ask. Thank you so very much. Mm-hmm. Okay, Shanir Derek, you may unmute. Hi. All right. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. All right. Um, I had a question with paratransit. We're going to get sure there next. Something you... Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to ask it right now. We're going to wait until later. No, hold, hold on, because we got a lot of paratransit to get to next. So one more. Okay. One more question. Okay. I'm sorry. Did, did he not have a question? He, he has a paratransit question. That was okay. All right. I, I, Jaws to. is talking to me, and I can't always. All right. Got it. Um, okay. Andy, go ahead. You may unmute. Okay. <clears throat> okay. This kind of piggybacks on Pam's question, and that is uh-huh. that uh, suppose you have a scenario where you have a person in a wheelchair waiting to get on the bus, and it's a mm-hmm. crowded bus, mm-hmm. and they want to come on, and the driver asks the people in the side-facing seats you know, to move or one of them to move so that he can fall down the seat or whatever, and the people don't move. What happens to that guy in the wheelchair? He, he, he can't get on the bus? So, so in that instant, and, and one of the things that um, a, a best practice for agencies, and, and actually Phoenix is an example of this, they actually have the flip-down seats for wheelchairs in a different part of the bus, um, and, they have a, and the wheelchair uh, ramp is actually on the second door uh, for this very reason, um, so that there's not conflicts between priority seating and wheelchair seating. Um, um, in, in practice, um, it's, a, it's a pretty esoteric, I'm, I'm trying to think if I know the, if I know the official you know, book chapter verse answer, and I don't know if I do. In practice, what happens is agencies are pretty, um, pretty firm about this. If they take the position that, that um, those, will, those, those priority seats um, do not often, ex- incl- they don't always include the seats that are flipped down. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking, for example, and I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of different configurations. Typically, the seats in the front of the bus are over the wheel wells, and those are not flip downs. The seats behind those are typically the flip downs, and those seats are typically reserved. Uh, or, I'm sorry, those seats are not typically priority seats, so they can be so drivers can insist that people move. I know that there's a lot of bus configurations. There are some uh, older buses, low floors, where what I'm saying is not true. Um, in practice, agencies are pretty aggressive about this when there's a wheelchair involved because of the pass-up issue. Um, I'm not sure if it came to court where it would land. Um, so let's um, let's go on to paratransit. Um, so lots of paratransit. I've got a picture on this slide of your typical. I'm sorry. Okay, uh, I've got a typical paratransit van on this slide. It's, um, and, I, and I'll tell you, paratransit looks different in different communities. But in most communities, uh, paratransit is a van. It's got a lift or a ramp. Um, it holds a bunch of people and it runs around in circles. Um, sometimes the circles make sense. Sometimes they don't. Um, so let's talk about what parrot and, and there are exceptions. I mean, there are some cities that are starting um, to, to, 
I mean, and some have done it for a while. I mean, LA has gone back and forth with taxis. Um, uh, Orange, you know, that Orange County has some alternative programs uh, that use uh, taxis and some other providers. Sacramento's is starting to do some stuff with the TNC. So there are exceptions, but most paratransit is in vans. And here's, here's what the law requires. So first off, paratransit uh, is um, available to people who meet eligibility requirements. Um, those, are, those requirements are set at the federal level, but they are essentially administered at the local level. So the law basically says you're eligible if you have a disability that prevents you from using uh, fixed route public transportation some or all of the time. Uh, and that includes, by the way, getting to and from transit. So um, I, I've heard many, many times in many places that people believe that agencies discriminate against blind people. If they do, they're breaking the law because um, as a person who's blind or visually impaired, um, you almost certainly are, are, are eligible at least for some trips based on the fact of getting to and from transit in unfamiliar areas and areas with complicated street environments. So, I mean, we could, that's a topic all by itself, but the, you certainly are likely to be eligible um, and you have an appeal right under federal law as well. So uh, under federal law, if you do not get granted, we have somebody um, who's not on mute. If you could mute, that would be great. Um, so if you um, apply for eligibility and you're denied as a person who's blind or visually impaired, you probably have the right to an appeal. We can take those questions if they come up. Um, service must be available uh, in the same areas and during the same hours. Uh, as fixed route transit. If you remember, I said it's fixed route transit. So if you're in an area that is served by a commuter rail, or if you're in an area that is served by an express bus and there's no local bus service, or if you're in an area that has microtransit but no other bus service, there's no requirement for paratransit in those areas. Um, if your transit system runs bus hours on you know, from say uh, six in the morning till six in the evening, and they have a commuter route that starts earlier, there's no bus service, that, uh, there's no paratransit requirement for that. It's only in the areas and during the hours that local fixed route transit service operates. Um, of course, paratransit's available on at least the next day basis. Um, some systems provide some same day service. It's not mandated by law. The law requires that if you wanna travel to tomorrow, they have to accept your trip request today. Um, service is available within one hour of the time that the customer requests. Um, and, and this is a big deal because um, if you think about it, you want to get picked up at 7 a.m. That, that means they can offer you anything from 6 to 8. And if you don't take it, that, that's, that's on you. It's not them. They're, they have a right to offer you anything from 6 to 8 for that 7 a.m. pickup. Um, the only exception to that, and this is not in the law, but it's an interpretation, is they can't violate the, the obvious and purpose of the trip. So if you tell the agency, um, I, I need to get to work by eight, and I, and I need to get picked up after three because I finished work at three, they can't offer you times that by design are going to basically cause you not to be able to go to work. Um, so they can't offer you, for example, a pickup time that would get that would by definition get you to work after your work start time, and they can't offer you a, a return time that's before you told them your shift is ending. So uh, this is something that a lot of agencies are sloppy with. Um, it's something that you should know and, and pay close attention to. 
Um, the uh, the law says there's no waiting lists and no denials. Um, they can't deny a trip if it's during, you know, if it's an ADA eligible customer making an ADA eligible trip, they have to honor it. They can't deny it ever as long as it's, you know, during the service hours and in the service area. Um, and there's no waiting list. They can't tell you, you know, I'm sorry, we're full, call back tomorrow or put you on a list. So one thing that's not on the slide, and I'll clarify it, subscription trips are not required by law. So a lot of transit agencies will establish waiting lists for subscription trips. Um, and they're allowed to do that because there is no legal requirement for them to provide uh, you know, a standing order subscription trip. It, those are, they go by different names, but they're not required. Um, they're really in transit's best interest because it helps them plan service. Uh, but some of them still hold on to the idea that, uh, that they don't have to do it. And so they limit it. Uh, service must be door to door if door to door is needed by the rider. Um, a lot of systems, I know LA access in particular used to be very strict curb to curb. Um, door to door is not required unless the customer needs it. And they can require you to have eligibility that proves that you need door to door. Uh, but if you need the driver to come to the door and meet you, um, and, and you establish that you need that because of your disability, the transit agency does have a legal requirement to provide it. Um, so we can talk about that if you have questions, but that is something that a lot of people don't know. And a lot of transit systems don't do a great job of communicating that uh, to their customers. Uh, here's a big one. We talked about it already. Travel times are limited to the time that the same trip would take on fixed route transit. So um, this is the LA thing with the commuter rail. Commuter rail don't count because it's not fixed route transit. So they can tie that trip length to the time that it would take to make that trip on a bus. But here's something to think about. If you live in an area like, um, and LA might not be the best example, the, the Bay Area would be a better example. You live in San Mateo County and you're going to, let's say, Concord or, um, or Antioch. That, that trip can be made on public transit. It's going to take you a, a couple of hours to make it. But on paratransit, that trip probably requires two transfers. Um, the ADA says that that trip on paratransit, transfers and all, cannot exceed the time that trip would take to make on public transit. And by the way, BART is considered um, uh, BART is considered a fixed route transit system. It is it is not a commuter rail system. It is definitely a fixed route transit system. Um, service cannot charge more than twice the transit fare for the same trip. Um, and I'm going to just stop on this one. Um, this is the one piece of, of uh, requirement that is explicitly in the ADA that strikes me as wrong. Um, I mean, there's others, but this one is blatant because we are literally telling people that cannot use a bus or a train that they have to pay twice as much so they can go somewhere. And that strikes me as, as unfair. And I think in 1990, I can tell you this was a compromise. It was a political deal that was made to get the law passed um, because transit was afraid that many, many people would use paratransit. So they basically said, you know, we need to negotiate. We need to have a way of keeping people from using it if they don't need it. 
And they decided to tie that to, they you know, make it expensive and then people won't do it. Um, but it's in the law and so they can do it. And many systems do it and some get in trouble because they don't do it very effectively, LA. Um, so what I'm telling you is this is one where, and we'll talk about what states can do. Um, this is one where the law gives them permission to do something that I think is pretty questionable given the fact that most people who have disabilities are on fixed incomes um, and we're asking them to pay twice as much as, as people who are paying an undiscounted fare on public transit. Pretty strange. Um, and then finally, riders can travel with a personal care attendant if they need it um, and at least one companion. The PCA is free. The companions pay the same fare as the rider. Um, and this is another area where transit agencies can sometimes get confused. Um, a personal care attendant is not someone that the rider needs in order to make a trip. It's somebody that the rider needs in order to help them with functions of daily living. So if you're going to the store and you want to take somebody with you who can help you shop, that person does count as a PCA. Um, so when you're thinking about your eligibility for paratransit, think broadly about what you use a PCA for. And a PCA can be any person. Um, if you need somebody to help you read, to navigate, to shop, whatever that person is doing, those are all PCA functions. And, and if, you can, if you can speak to those uh, in the eligibility process, you do have a legal right uh, to have a PCA and that person then could travel with you at no additional charge. Um, let me stop there and just ask if we have any questions on that content. It's about two minutes to the hour and you have four hands at the moment. Let's, okay, let's take them all, but let's go quick. Um, one question okay. per person. Let's go. Charlene, you should be able to unmute. Well, and I have a question for you in talking uh -huh. about the paratransit using taxis to um, assist them with uh, filling um, schedules. Uh -huh. Because the ADA says that a person in a wheelchair needs to have the same um, service as a person who does not need a wheelchair. How are companies, transit companies, proving that by using taxis, they are not giving a priority to people who can use a taxi and not a will, um, require a lift? Uh, so good question. Um, the issue is it's, it's around equity and what, the, what is typically looked at is travel time and response time. So if a person in a wheelchair has a fundamentally uh, lower quality of service over time, you know, their trips take longer. Uh, at some point, then the, the agency has to explain uh, how that service is equitable. If it's not equitable, then it can create a challenge for the agency. Um, this is an area that's evolving. The law is not real clear, um, but typically they're going to look at, at service quality as the, as the metric. Next question. Hi, um, this is uh, Joshua Saunders. And Ron, I was asking, um, I know that paratransit is tied to fixed route transit. And one thing I've always wondered is how did that, how is that, why does it work that way? Why is it limited to only those things? Um, this is my personal belief. I wasn't there. Um, I was in college um, drinking beer. Oh, never mind. That's a different story. Um, so what I believe probably happened is if you think about the history of the ADA, it, it really came from the same um, set of movements that brought the Civil Rights Act. And so the idea here is that it, the ADA was intended to provide the same access to the service that other people received. And because the uh, transit industry had the requirements under the Federal Rehab Act, 
the advocates focused on transit. Um, they didn't focus on the rest of the transportation landscape um, because, they, they, I mean, they just didn't focus on it. They were focused on trying to fix transit, which was very broken under the Rehab Act. And so they used civil rights logic to say, we have the same right to transportation, you know, public transportation as everybody else does. And I, th- I really think that's what happened. I personally think it's an accident of history. I don't, I don't think there's any logical reason other than it's just how it turned out. Because it really seems to limit what, we're, what we yeah. have access to, you know, because we have only access to what's fixed route access versus, you know, what people can do with a car. Yes. I know, I know that some agencies have tried to use Uber or Lyft, at least I've heard, as a, a temporary measure or something. Mm-hmm. As any, as, have, has there been any progress in that regard? The, yeah, there, ha- there has, but not most transit agencies limit their service to where they operate. Um, there are some cities that approach things differently. Um, when, when I was here in the Phoenix area, um, we approached it a bit differently, but that's because our cities here in the region um, provided most of the funding and most of the decision-making. So we took a slightly different tack, but most transit agencies are focused on the areas where they operate. Um, and again, remember that agencies can only count what they can, they, they, they only can count what the federal government says they can count, um, and they don't like to do anything that they can't count because it affects their funding formula. So these are things that we have to work through as advocates, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Okay. So... Um, real quickly, we had two more questions. Okay, Sheila Gunn-Cushman. In Alameda County, AC Transit, which is our biggest transit mm-hmm. system, is having a love affair with BRT, Bus Rapid Transit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I have a couple of related questions. Um, one, is BRT considered fixed route or is it something else? Um, I would argue that it... <laughs> It's a very good question. I would argue that it's it's going to be considered something else, um, even though I would argue that it should be uh, considered transit, a uh, fixed route. And I'm not sure if the industry has, that, has fully answered that question. It did not exist when the idea was written, so it's gray. The other thing, um, a related thing, is um, I, I would like to see a lot more integrated stuff where um, micro can lead to fixed route and so mm-hmm, on and so on. Mm-hmm. And I can't, it, it's a long story. I can't use Uber and Lyft reliably. And I can't, um, I also can't wear a mask. I can wear a shield. That's been a problem. Paratransits flip flopped a lot around that. Yep. Um, but I am trying to, um, I can't do scented products and right. everybody loves their air fresheners and i don't yeah <clears throat> help <laughs> yeah no it's a, it's a tough issue and and i the ada doesn't specifically address chemical sensitivity which was um pretty controversial even back then and and i would say that that's probably an issue you're going to have to um wrestle at the local level and we can you know we can talk about that when we get to local a little bit um let me take the last question before and then we need to keep going Okay, Shinner Derek, go ahead. Hi, right, it's me again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a question about, um, I think it was will calls. Is there a set time where will calls have to be served? Because our current, where I'm at, we have will calls where it's five to 90 minutes. So is there any, yep. is that based on a standard or is that just? It's, uh, those service? are completely local. They're not required by, by the ADA. They can do whatever they want. 
Oh, wow. Now, that doesn't mean <laughs> you can't advocate, but it does mean that the law doesn't cover it. Yeah, well, me and uh, my blonde friend, uh, we've uh-huh. been talking about that needs to be advocated because it's a little ridiculous right. where we're at. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Let's you. keep going. All right. Um, these are great questions, by the way. I wish we had more time. Because okay, I'm going to continue on. I don't want to deal with having to set something up a day in advance. Okay, and I agree. Um, th- this I'm is part of... Part of why I believe in on-demand paratransit. Who lives their life a day in advance? Um, (laughs) If you've been a parent, you aren't living your life a day in advance, I can tell you right now. Um, Anyway, uh, next slide here is what is decided locally. And I've got a uh, a nice little picture here of a green street sign. uh, And we are um, at the uh, corner of Process and uh, Avenue and Procedure Street. So, So all transit operating policies and procedures are determined locally. And I'll repeat it, all are determined locally. Now they have to meet the requirements of the law. Okay, they have to, they can't violate state or federal law, but they are determined locally. There's a transit board, there's a city council, depends on how your agency is structured. They make those decisions and then staff carries them out. Um, and the degree to which um, staff, you know, is, makes decisions is determined by how the board works. Um, I can tell you, for example, at LA Access, I mean, it's my opinion that the staff has a lot of authority to set policy and procedure, and the board, um, you know, they, they certainly have a say, uh, but the staff has a lot of authority to kind of govern how things get done. Um, so, um, and I'd say the same is probably true for uh, SAC RT. I, I know some of the agencies in California better than others, but so here are the things that agencies um, at the local level determine when and where public transit and para, uh, public transit operates, uh, and ultimately when and where tr- paratransit operates too. Service types offered, and that's a big deal. Um, an agency can decide, for example, we don't want to run a local bus route in this area because we don't have enough ridership. Let's cut that route and let's have microtransit instead. And when they do, that changes the paratransit requirement as well. Um, they, um, determine, uh, things like, um, the, the fares and methods of payment. Um, and that's a pretty big deal because they set the fare, uh, and they can totally set the fare wherever they want it for fixed route. Paratransit is tied to it up to twice as much. Um, but they also set the methods of payment. So, and this is one of those things where we see a lot of discrepancy between the methods that are available to customers who use transit or rail or um, uh, express bus or commuter rail. And then paratransit in many places is still tied to tickets and cash and you can't do anything else. And it's very, very um, different looking uh, when you're in paratransit, um, usually not as good. Um, who provides the service? That's determined locally. They have to meet federal guidelines for contracting, but they get to decide who their provider is um, and they do not have to get permission for that. Um, so many of the paratransit policies are also determined locally. Um, eligibility, for example, is absolutely determined at the local level. Uh, the, the law says who is eligible, but the agency decides what the process looks like, whether it's an application or an interview, you know, how long is the eligibility period? Is there an auto renewal or do you have to go through the whole process every three years? Those are all local decisions made locally. Um, when and where? Uh, service operates. That's determined, again, locally. Uh, it, has, you know, it has to meet the requirements of the ADA, but it's you know, beyond, to go beyond that is a local decision. 
Um, the fares, again, local, uh, as long as they don't exceed twice the regular fare, they can do that. Methods of payment, also local. Uh, who provides the service? So if they contract out, um, they can decide who the contractor is. Um, and then the last thing on the slide I list is ADA reasonable modifications and complaint procedures. We haven't talked about ADA reasonable modifications, um, we, and we don't have time today, but the law entitles people with disabilities um, to request modifications to policies and procedures uh, if, it, if they need the modification to use the service. And, and getting door-to-door -door service in a curb-to-curb -curb system would be an example. But the procedures for how that works are all set locally. So, um, and that's important because, um, and as we're going to now jump into the implications for, for CCB and for individuals, um, the first thing is that almost all advocacy um, is local. Um, I mean, you know, we, we advocate at the federal level for things like funding, uh, for, for things like, you know, big changes to federal laws. You know, those are federal efforts. But most other issues are local. They, they are things that you can advocate for within the community that you are in. Um, so let me just talk about what the CCB, uh, what I think the CCB is well positioned to do as an affiliate um, to help the local chapters and individuals. And then I'll get to, to the local chapters after that. I think the, the CCB is in an excellent position to provide uh, transit-specific advocacy training. And, and, you know, if the, if the CCB has the expertise, you can provide it directly. If you don't, you can help, you know, find people to provide it. But, um, you know, it's, it's a fairly complicated topic, um, and it's a topic that um, the CCB is certainly through conferences like this one and elsewhere, you know, you have the ability to provide this training and then bring people to it so they can become more uh, effective as local advocates. Um, I think the CCB is well positioned to provide uh, technical uh, support uh, to local chapters and individuals when they have transit issues and they need some help. Um, some of these issues are pretty, they're pretty detailed and they're pretty specific and, you know, they're, they can be a little bit murky. And I think that the CCB is in a good position to kind of be a clearinghouse to help with those issues that are just a little bit harder um, that maybe someone at the local level might not uh, have have the answer for. Uh, coordinating state level advocacy efforts um, when, when they're needed. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, paratransit fares are set by federal law. They can't exceed twice the fare of, the, of transit. There have been states in the past that got state level legislation. Washington State was one of them. And I don't know if it's still in effect. I think they might have dumped it uh, during the uh, 20, uh, 2010 recession. Uh, but, but in Washington State for a time, the state had a law that said you can't charge a paratransit customer more than you charge a transit customer. Um, and they did that because they felt that it was not fair. And so I think there are certain kinds of issues that, that an affiliate like CCB can, can advocate for at a state level because agencies do have to meet state law if they exceed ADA requirements. Uh, and then finally, is assisting... Uh, with litigation when it's needed. And there are times when, and I know I, I don't know if you've done it with transit, but CCB has certainly gotten involved when there is a local issue where there's a problem um, and, and it's not getting resolved in the way that it should. The CCB can certainly step in uh, and help those local chapters and, and help those individuals who need that help. Um, so those are things that I think the affiliate can do 
And now what I want to do is talk about what individuals and local chapters are well positioned to do. And um, on this slide, this might be the only controversial picture. I've got a black and white uh, photo here of a bunch of men standing around with guns and looking confident. Uh, sounds like Arizona, but, uh, but actually the reason I picked it is because as local transit, as local chapters, you're on the front lines. You guys are the ones who are going to have to fight these battles. And, and no, don't take guns to the transit meetings. They don't like it when you do that. But, but you are the ones who have to fight these battles. And here are some of the things that I think you can do at the local chapter level or as individuals that can be effective. Uh, one is attend advocacy boards uh, and committees, uh, regional uh, policy and planning committees. You know, all these meetings that happen locally, uh, chapters ought to be in them. Um, and I will tell you, my entire transit career, all of it, 100%, is because of the Alameda County chapter of the CCB back in the day. They needed somebody to go sit at BART um, Accessibility Task Force meetings, and I volunteered because um, I was so frustrated with the service that I was receiving at the time that I volunteered because I thought they might actually listen. And I got in and got interested and got into the career. And now I've, I've never not, it's my whole career. So, um, so, you know, get people to these meetings. This is where things happen. It's where input gets collected. You need to be in the room. Uh, second is participate on those local transit uh, boards and committees. It's one thing to sit in a meeting and share and, and provide comment. It's a whole other thing to be sitting at the table, um, speaking up and casting votes when there's an opportunity to cast votes. Um, it is super important for us and it's really tiring and exhausting, but it's super important to be at the table. Um, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is starting to give out of me a little bit. Um, speak up. So speak up when service needs are not being met. Uh, individuals should continuously and always uh, file uh, comments, and I would say compliments as well as complaints when there's a reason to do so. But chapters can also speak. Um, chapters can, can write letters to the board of a transit agency. Uh, chapters can, um, you know, circulate petitions. Speak up when there's a problem. Be heard. Um, it, it'll strengthen the voices of your members. Uh, it'll strengthen the voices of other people that are speaking up. Uh, you know, you guys as chapters speak for many people. So use that voice um, at the local level to raise issues when they need to get raised. Designate local members uh, to be transit advocacy experts and get them trained. Um, and I probably should have listed this first. Um, I personally believe that any chapter of any size should have at least one person um, who um, is actually like designated to be the transit, you know, kind of advocate or one of several, if you can have several and get them trained, just sending people to meetings to, to sit and report is not effective. Um, people who speak up at meetings and, and when they don't know what they're talking about, don't have credibility, they're not heard. So if you, if you want to be in these meetings, take the time, make the investment to get them trained so that when they're at these meetings, they can, they can say the right things, be effective uh, and speak you know, speak with, with uh, knowledge uh, behind what they say. Um, next, share challenges uh, and successes with other local chapters and with the CCB as a whole. You know, have communication, um, you know, have a communication channel so that people can share information back and forth. 
Um, and this is really important in areas where you have chapters that are all in the same kind of ecosystem. So like the LA area, um, you know, everybody, if you're in the LA access service area, which is huge, there are several CCB chapters there. You guys should be coordinating your efforts so that you're speaking with one voice uh, and not working accidentally against each other's uh, intentions. So I'm going to just get to my last slide. This is my contact slide. Um, and I will send contact information. Actually, Sarah has it, so you can feel free to share. Um, this is my information. Uh, I'm happy to uh, answer questions, you know, up to the, uh, you know, assuming I have the answers. Um, so feel free. Um, just for purposes of those of you who um, want it, if you want to reach out, my accessible avenue, uh, kind of public-facing contact information is uh, connect at accessibleavenue.net. That's connect at accessibleavenue is all one word, dot net. Um, and I'm certainly happy to, to uh, engage with people if you have questions or concerns or you know any other kinds of needs. So I will stop there. I don't know how much time we have left. I do want to draw a door prize. Why don't we do that? And then we can take questions. Um, I think, was it Lisa who's drawing that door prize? I can't remember. Yes. So um, door prize lady, Vanna, Vanna Thomas, Vanna Lisa, what did I call you earlier? <laughs> you call me a lot of things, Sarah. Um, and I'm going to try to do this. I'm not going to be able to read it. I don't have it open. But basically what this is, we have a local candy company called Soretta's. Uh, gourmet chocolate. And this is a, um, a set of three different kinds of their chocolates. Um, the French mints, um, there's some solid chocolates that are different shape, Western shapes. I think they have like cowboy boots and the map of Arizona and maybe something else. I can't remember. Maybe, maybe stars. I'm not sure. And then there's one other kind of chocolate. I forget what it is, but it's three kinds of chocolate that they're known for. Um, it'll be shipped to you. So uh, once we draw this i'm going to be giving your contact information uh, i'll reach out to you by email and we'll make plans so that you can uh, receive your door prize so um, without further ado um go ahead okay And the winner of the chocolate is Jason Holloway. Woo, Jason. So we'll, we'll be in touch within the next day or so to, to make arrangements. Um, I don't know what time it is. Oh, we have about 10 minutes for questions. So we got 10 minutes. So go ahead and let's, let's take as many as we can. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, Ron, uh, I hear your call to action. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess my question is, where do we get the training? I've been to a lot of access <clears throat> meetings, and there's a lot of crazy questions. So uh, where do you recommend somebody start? So, you know, I mean, first off, that's kind of what this was intended to be. So, I mean, if there's a topic that CCB wants to dive into a little deeper, um, you know, this is one avenue. There are other people that provide this training. Um, so, I mean, I think I'd be happy to... Um, you know, work with CCB if they were to say, hey, we need a training on this topic uh, to either help you find it, help you provide it, or, or figure out, you know, where you can get it. So That's great to hear. Thank you. Yep. Uh-huh. Okay, Anthony. Actually, Steve asked my question, which is, as uh, <clears throat> being in a local chapter, I would like to know where we can go, go for this training. Yep. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Okay, Sheila. 
Hey there. Um, hey. So Oakland has a voucher program mm-hmm. for its local paratransit. Problem is, it's all in print. And mm-hmm. they use um, taxis, which I don't know if they'll use sense or not. Um, but I'm not able to communicate well. They have a phone number. They never answer it. It's mm-hmm. probably partly to do, due to COVID, people not being in offices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's quite frustrating. Yeah. Um, we have a mayor's commission on persons with disabilities. I can speak to them. I can CC their staff and, you know, show, I can, I can write a letter to these other people if I can find an address for them. I don't know if I've got one. Um, uh, recommendations. Um, I think you're on the right track. I mean, if it's a local city voucher program, it's it's probably not covered uh, under. I mean, it's it's they have to be able to. They, even though it's not a transit program per se, it still has to meet general ADA non discrimination requirements. So well, yeah, still, isn't, it, yeah. isn't it under programmatic access? Yes. So I think you can. I think what you're doing is the right thing to do. Um, you know, it, the the these these programs remember if it's a city program the one thing you didn't mention is call your city council member i don't know if mm-hmm. oklands are at large or if they're by district but you know start if, if you're and, not getting help the, from staff, my district use, wants things but anyway <laughs> well you got it you, you got to use the tools you got i mean you got a mayor you got a city council one, member yep yeah anyway. and ron, ron this yep. is sarah if i may add one more piece is so it's like some of the programs that are like that may be funded in a different way I would really start by finding out how that is funded because we have a program here in our county that like that, that is funded uh, under different kinds of funds. And, and so you have to go a little bit in a different direction. Well, let me, yeah, let me go to the funders. Well, hold on. Yeah. Let me just, let me clarify that. And I don't disagree with you, but I do want to clarify it. So funding the people who fund service may have rules but the people who answer to voters are the people who make decisions. So I, I, I personally think, yes, find out the funding because you may have leverage through a funder and you should always, I mean, you know, take that effort. But at the end of the day, if it is a local program that is provided locally and it's approved by a council, like a city council or a county commission or whoever, public politicians who got voted into office voted for it um they answer to you as a voter never give up your power um you know people who fund programs they're i'm not trying to be rude but they're bureaucrats they don't answer to voters people in elected office at the local level do answer to voters and they are usually pretty responsive i'd probably do both i'd find out who the funding is contact the funders if you don't get satisfaction you can always go to the policy level next which is your board committee it's your board or your city council or whoever. The media can be a tool. I mean, there are other tools too, and we haven't really talked about those. But um, I would definitely always, personally, I always believe local is the best kind of advocacy because you're talking to people in your community who have a stake in the outcome. I believe it's Pampology. Go ahead. You- Thank you, Andrea. And it is I. Uh, this is the Arizona wannabe again. Uh-huh. Um, I... I, I in a situation, if you have a set time that uh, paratransit is supposed to pick you up at the end of your trip, uh, the establishment which you are visiting is now closed, 
So they gave me an 8.20 p.m. I called at that time, and they said it would be 45 minutes to call back in 15. I called back in 15, and they said it would be an hour and a half. Um, so I spoke with a supervisor who just kept saying, like I said, it'll be an hour and a half several times. What, I don't know if this is a local issue or, or, cause I know they used to send other vendors if they didn't have any Who's cars the provider? available. Is this access? Yes. I'd file a complaint with access. And I did. Access, okay. And if access can't solve the problem, I would probably escalate this to, um, I would probably escalate it to the access board. And then I would also access, I would elevate it to the federal, U.S. Federal Department of Transportation of the uh, Office of Civil Rights. Um, and we didn't really talk about, like, I didn't go into a bunch of, like, book chapter verse on who to call and where and when. Um, but, you know, this is a, these kinds of things are happening a lot right now because of driver shortages and COVID and all the things that are going on. Um, and they're putting people at risk. It's unsafe. So um, I would actually probably, if they're not getting you an answer, and if it, you know, once in a while, if it happens, it happens. But if it keeps happening, I think I would probably, first off, document it every time it happens, even if you don't complain. Because the first thing that the federal regulators are going to ask you is to show me a pattern of, of this happening. And if you can't demonstrate mm-hmm. that it's happening regularly, they're not going to take much interest. Okay. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Okay, Charlene and Charlene will be our last. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, Thank you, sir. This yep. is a graph being at what should be done and isn't done. I keep trying to put out to where I'm speaking to on committees and stuff that it is unfair to a person with a disability that their trans paratransit is is terminated because a bus was terminated. And that is because when people move and live somewhere, they look for a place that has public transit, and therefore the transit system itself created the problem. So until a person moves into a anywhere else, then they should be covered under like a grandfather because they previously had it, and it was transit's fault that they don't have it. Is there any, do I have much of a way of thinking that I eventually get through to them? I'll tell you what the challenge is. Uh, legally, they have no requirement to do that. Um, ethically, it's an ethically interesting question because um, if you are a bus rider and you bought a house and you use transit and you're not disabled, but you use that bus and they cancel your bus route, you are just as stranded as a paratransit rider who depended on that paratransit. So but a it's pa- a, a paratransit. I'm, a paratransit rider that is not disabled could very likely walk to the local, you know, the closest bus. Not, okay. uh, paratransit. So yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to argue. Advantage I, that I don't may, maybe, maybe if I, you know, I, we could argue scenarios all day long. The fact of the matter is, this is why I think that paratransit should be tied to a community and not to a bus route because. People, because the real issue for most people is that they don't have access to, to the ability to drive. Um, but the ADA ties transit, paratransit to public transit, and public transit has the right to cut service. And they, and they have a legal responsibility only to provide paratransit where they provide fixed route transit. So there's nothing in the law. The ethics are complicated um, because if you're poor 
and you're in an area and you depend on that bus and they take that bus away and you can't walk to the nearest bus stop because it's far because there's no more bus routes, you're stranded just like the disabled person is. And, and I don't want to argue that. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. That's why paratransit should tie to something other than where buses operate, in my opinion. Amen. Yes. Amen. So, Ron, if you Mm want to wrap it up in in, in a couple of words to, uh, as you said, inform, inspire, and motivate, and and all those other grandiose things, what what, what do you want to say to CCV? We have not talked about equity at all, but I want to tell you, this is my belief. Um, Two things. The ADA requires accessible transit. I'm sorry, transit that's accessible to people with disabilities, an inclusive society, okay, which is, I think, what we should be aiming for, requires transportation that doesn't financially, economically, and emotionally drain you by the process of using it. Um, Equity says that everybody should have the same access to what society offers. Until our public transportation system does that, we do not have equity. We need to fight for equity that gives people with disabilities the same access to everything uh, that society offers. And that includes the ability to move about. So, you know, what I'm advocating for and what I hope CCB will advocate for is that broader definition of, of true equity, which is we get to travel just like other people travel when and where uh, they want uh, and on the same time frame that other people are able to do it. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and Ron, we're going to invite you back for um, future things like the, the whole time you were talking, um, I, I got motivated in, in a lot of ways. So, um, and many people know here, Sarah gets an idea and watch out. So, right. <laughs> so well, thank, thank you, you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, and thank you. And thank you for the prize. I'm so jealous of Jason Halloway. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. It's good stuff. All right. Thank thank you. you Thank you so very much. So this concludes the end of our second general session. Um, I want to remind folks to come back at 6 p.m., which will be led by our very own Lisa Presley Thomas. And she will be herself and Vanna Lisa and everybody else all at the same time, because that's what we do. And if you are a delegate or an alternate delegate, make sure you are joining in tonight. Um, That information has been sent out to the president's list. And I will Mm -hmm. make sure that I send it out to both lists just in case. If you do not have that webinar, because it is a different webinar, please email convention.ccb at gmail.com. And I will help you out. I promise. Um, may take me a bit, but I'm going to try to do my best because that's what I try all the time. And Sarah, if, and since it was since it was sent to the president's list, should we also maybe let people know they can contact their presidents just so that you're not potentially inundated? We can say that too if they want to try to do that. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's all about who however you can get the information, get the information. I'm just trying to be helpful. And I was just going to ask you, Mr. President, do you have any uh, words before we close? I don't think so. Great, great session this afternoon. Thank you to all of our presenters for being here. And uh, I'm just glad that I live in the Bay Area. Maybe I can invite or uh, wrangle an invitation from Jason. Yeah, uh, really. Chocolate the, sounds good. For the chocolate. So let's finish with one more door prize. And let's close it out. Go for it. Lisa, Vanna, Vanna, Lisa. <laughs> 
Okay, <laughs> let's do another $25 uh, Amazon gift card. This one was given by Glendale Burbank Chapter. Let's do a good shuffle. Here we go. And the winner is Steve Bauer. Congratulations. Hey, all right. Hey, Steve. Hey, Steve. <laughs> all right. Well, happy Friday the 13th again, everybody. And we will all see you back here at 6 p.m.